0: There is a place where fears and fantasies get weighed on substance alone. Legends and lores are examined in fresh light. Conspiracy theory meets conspiracy fact. Abandon your defenses. Embrace the possibilities. Step beyond the threshold into
1: other realms.
2: They can, they can
3: About three feet tall. And it remembers
2: everything that ever happened And then there was one point where I heard, uh, wow. we were there.
4: I want to you're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. with me. is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Michael Cremo. He's going to be calling in to talk to us about a whole bunch of things, as well as Michael Clean and Larry Wilson. He's going to talk to us about his new book. And we also have a very interesting abduction case, and she's going to be calling in to tell us her story. That and much more on Threshold Radio. We'll be right back right after this quick commercial break.
3: EdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info.com.
5: With the month of October and Halloween fast approaching, we want you, the listener, to share your creepy stories with us. Call us, email us, text us your personal story, your local legends and folklore. Every week in October, we'll read your story on air. You can even read it yourself if you're not afraid. Call or text us at 708-966-9UFO. 708-966-9836. Or email John directly at ghost1 at bachelor's grove.com. Thank you, and we look forward to your stories.
4: You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me, is Sam Ranto and John Stevenson. And right now, we have Michael Cremo on the line.
0: Michael Cremo is on the cutting edge of science and cultural issues. In the course of a few months' time, you might be found in on a pilgrimage into some sacred site in India, appearing on national television, uh, lecturing in mainstream science conferences like you did just recently, uh, or speaking to the uh, attentive science gathering. As he crosses disciplinary and cultural boundaries, he presents to his various audiences a compelling case for negotiating a new consensus on the nature of reality. Now, Michael, I want to thank you for coming on board here today and let me interview you. You just came back from a conference, an archaeological conference up in, um, Michigan, and uh, how did that turn out, by the way?
6: Oh, that was a very nice event. It was sponsored by the Ancient Artifacts Preservation Society, which is an alternative archaeological society. Uh, A lot of their work is focused on ancient copper mines, Uh, that were made uh, in the upper peninsula of Michigan. So that's what most of their work focuses on. But they wanted uh, me to come as a speaker and say something about my forbidden archaeology research, which has to deal with archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity. So it was nice to be there and meet up with some of the other researchers who are delving into alternative ideas about archaeology, and I made my contribution.
0: Excellent. Uh, Your book, uh, Forbidden Archaeology, is just one of uh, many books and articles that you you have written, and of course, most people will recognize you and know you from the uh, uh, recent series on history called um, Ancient Aliens. Uh, but you also did a, a very good documentary that was on NBC, um, and then again stating the case for uh, very um, old uh, a, 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 uh, what was the terminology you use? Uh,
6: Well, I I would say uh, extreme human antiquity, evidence for extreme human antiquity, by which I mean evidence that humans like us have been present on Earth for many, many millions of years, going all the way back to the very beginnings of the history of life on Earth. And this would contradict the current mainstream scientific ideas about human origins, which say that humans like us first came into existence only about 150,000 years ago on this planet. So I'm presenting evidence that contradicts that, evidence showing that humans like us have existed for many millions of years on Earth.
0: And that, because you are basically butting heads against the uh, mainstream uh, academia, uh, you get a lot of uh, static, don't you?
6: Yes, uh, things like that can happen. Uh, You were mentioning that NBC television documentary, Mysterious Origins of Man, that was produced for NBC by a man named Bill Cote, and he had read my book, Forbidden Archaeology, and he wanted to include some cases from the book in his documentary. So I told him he should go to the Museum of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley because I knew that some artifacts from the California gold mines that were discovered in the 19th century were still in the collection of that museum. These these artifacts included stone tools and weapons that were found in the California gold mines and were collected by Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was the chief government geologist of uh, California at the time. And what makes these discoveries so interesting to me is that they were found in layers of solid rock belonging to the early part of the geological period called the Eocene, which would mean these uh, human artifacts were over 50 million years old, Uh, for example, many human artifacts were found in mining tunnels at Table Mountain in Tuolumne County near the town of Sonora in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. As I said, these were collected by Dr. Whitney and he wrote a report about them that was published by Harvard University in the year 1880, but although these reports are there, published in the scientific literature by a professional scientist, we don't read about them in the textbooks today because of what I would call a process of knowledge filtration that operates in the world of science. You know, if you've got a a well-established theory like the current theory of human evolution, then you'll find that reports of evidence that conform to the theory pass through this intellectual filter very easily, which means students will read about these things in their textbooks. But if we've got reports of evidence that radically contradict a dominant theory, like the current Darwinian theory of human evolution, then those facts tend to be filtered out. And these California gold mine discoveries are a perfect example of that. Uh, They were reported by Dr. Whitney, a prominent geologist, a prominent scientist in America. His report was published by Harvard University. But because of this process of knowledge filtration, we don't hear very much about them today. You won't see them mentioned in the textbooks, for example. There was Another scientist who lived at the same time as Dr. Whitney, Dr. William Holmes, who was an anthropologist at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. And he said, if Dr. Whitney had understood the theory of human evolution, he wouldn't have published those discoveries as he did. In other words, they should simply have been forgotten. And basically, that's what happened. Now, as I said, when Bill Cote, the producer of the NBC documentary, Mysterious Origins of Man, approached me after having read my book, Forbidden Archeology, he, he wanted to include some of the cases from the book in his documentary. So I told him he should go to the Museum of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley because I knew that some of the 50 million year old human artifacts from the California gold mines are still in the collection of that museum. But when Bill Cote went to the museum, the museum officials refused to allow him to see or what to speak of film, the artifacts. And somehow or other, we were able to find Although we weren't able to uh, film the artifacts, we were able to find some photographs of the artifacts that Dr. Whitney had taken in the 19th century. So we did have some images to use in the documentary, which included not just this case, but other cases that I mentioned in my work, and also cases that have been been uh, documented by other researchers in alternative history and alternative archaeology. So when scientists who support the current theories learned that NBC was going to show this program, they tried to stop NBC from doing it. They failed. NBC did show the program. It was very popular, so NBC decided to show it again. And uh, again, these scientists, supporters of the current theories, like the Darwinian theory of evolution, tried to stop NBC from showing it. They organized a massive international letter-writing campaign among scientists, and they tried to pressure the president of the General Electric Company, which owns NBC to instruct NBC not to show the program again. Again, their effort failed, so then they went to the government, to the Federal Communications Commission, which is the agency of the government that regulates the TV industry. And they tried to get the FCC to investigate NBC, censure NBC, they wanted uh, the government to force NBC to broadcast primetime apologies for having shown the program, and they also wanted the government to fine NBC millions of dollars so they would never do anything like this again. So, cool. So yes, sometimes there is opposition to the kind of work that I do. Sometimes uh, supporters of the current dominant theories to try to stop lectures that I've been scheduled to give at uh, universities. For example, earlier this year, I did a lecture tour of universities in the Midwestern part of the United States. I spoke at Penn State University. I spoke at Northwestern University in Chicago. I spoke at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and I spoke at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis and I had been scheduled to give a lecture at the University of Indiana, Bloomington, but uh, faculty members who opposed my views convinced the administration of the university to cancel the lecture. So this thing happens in other countries too. My books are now published in about 20 different languages. One of them is Russian. So I've been invited to speak at universities and scientific institutions all over Russia from one end of the country to another. It's a huge country. Uh, I've spoken in Universities, north, south, east, and west, all over the whole country. And you so saw the day before the lecture, the president of the university canceled the lecture because of pressure from other professors in the university who did not want me to speak there. They objected to my lecture because I was going to say something that opposed the Darwinian theory of human evolution. So. Uh, the professors who invited me tried to get the president of the university to change his mind, but he wouldn't do it because there was just too much pressure from the opponents. So the professors who invited me then went to the local branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences and they spoke to the director there. And he said, okay, Michael Cremo can speak here and nobody will put any pressure on me to cancel this lecture. So they had Buses bring students and professors from the university to the Russian Academy of Sciences building, and the lecture was held there. It was very well attended. As a matter of fact, the professors who invited me told me that more people came to the lecture than would have come if it had been held at the university as originally scheduled, because everybody all over the university was wondering, what is this man going to say? Yeah, you know, that's so dangerous that you know the president of the university canceled his lecture. So uh, the next that year
0: a, that's interesting. <laughs> that's a little blowback on on their part, I would say.
6: <laughs> yeah. So the next year I went back to the same university and I spoke in the biology department there, no problem. So yeah, you're, you're correct. Sometimes there is opposition to what I say. There are people who don't want this kind of message getting out to the public. They, they try to keep a monopoly in the education system for their own ideas. So yes, they're, they're, I, I sometimes do encounter uh, some opposition, yes.
0: This is something that obviously I, I get quite a bit of, uh, and uh, funny thing NBC when I uh, when I was involved with the 10 best uh, UFO sightings we had issues there because it had to be balanced so the so-called skeptics had to be involved and by the time they were done with the final product uh, it took months later and it didn't turn out as we were told. The other thing is we were supposed to get we supposed to receive, a volume of all these cases that they were requesting people to send in uh, their footage, their accounts, etc., and not one case ever showed up uh, at my doorstep or an email. In fact, I, I never even received any emails from doing the uh, uh, the uh, uh, show. And here there was three three million uh, viewers the first time. So I mean, things that go on, most people couldn't have a clue about the degree of uh, censoring anything other than what must be proclaimed to be uh, uh, the orthodoxy of of, uh, of what is allowed in both media and in uh, the academic world, and that's so absurd.
6: Well, I, th- I think you're absolutely right about that. I think things are opening up a little bit, but it's still pretty much as you described. And as far as this question of balance is concerned, you you said uh, you were going to present something about the 10 best UFO sightings, and they asked for balance by having the skeptics also present. Well, it seems they only do that. They only give balance when it's opposition to the orthodox ideas. They just allow the orthodox ideas to be presented without without any balance. You know, if they're going to have balance, they should have balance on both sides. In other words, if they're going to uh, say that you have to have the opposition speaking when you present something, then I think when the other side presents its point of view, then there should also be some balance, some opposing views presented, and just let people make up their own minds. I think it's not very good if they're selective in their decisions about when balance is needed or not.
0: True. In other words, the paper, if you had a for instance, this is the this is you know, if you had a a show on anything and and there was a, a solid or large countering view, it should be allowed. Well, that doesn't
6: that doesn't sense. Well, I you know I'm I'm of the view that all right if they're going to let uh, the uh, supporters of the current theories present their views unopposed, then at times they should let the critics of the uh, mainstream theories present their views unopposed. I think that's the best thing. Why can't they just have it? Why do they have to have balance? Just I mean, let people make their own balance by choosing what programs they want to watch. that's uh, that's how I would see it. i I think it's it's uh, the best thing would be they should have just let you have your say. and if others want to say something else, well, They've got plenty of opportunity to do that on all kinds of shows that are aired on you know, the Discovery Channel and the National Geographic Channel and PBS and things like that, on programs like Nova and sorts like that where they just present the mainstream ideas. That's, uh, so I think there's plenty of room for having shows that just focus on the alternative ideas, and then right. let people select from all the shows that are available to them what ones they want to watch. I don't well, think it's that in every single case you have to have balance. Now, now I would say to be fair, if they're going to ask for balance when the alternative ideas are presented, then to be fair, they should insist on balance when the mainstream ideas are presented.
0: Absolutely. They should be able to counter it back if you are the focus of the presentation. And that doesn't seem to be the case. The other thing is terminology. I am so tired of certain terminology such as believers. Uh, believers, you know, when it comes to research, uh, when you're presenting factual information, uh, you know, you're, you're presenting evidence to support a theory. and And, and for the most part, Uh, for the most part, and that is exactly what science is. Uh, Instead of, you know, even uh, these so-called skeptics will throw on the the term proof that, that, well, there is no proof. Well, the bottom line is there is no proof in science and math and logic. Yes, there is, but not in science. And we have to remain tentative to be truly scientific and to always pursue and reevaluate what we think we know. And that is a healthier way, uh, uh, I think, that science was initially or er- er conceived for us to use. And um, I-, I applaud the fact that you're presenting information, and uh, it's, there's enough supporting information and evidence, and this is solid evidence, it's tangible, it's there, that calls into questions modern theory. And why can't we take a peek at this or consider it and weigh it? Or why does it have to be thrown out as a red herring?
6: Yeah, I I agree with that basic approach. And this whole question of belief or faith or whatever, all science is based on, to some extent, having faith in or believing that other scientists are presenting accurate trustworthy information it's not that say if you're studying chemistry you can redo yourself every chemical experiment that uh, is involved in the whole structure of modern chemistry you know that's been going on for a couple of centuries now you can't personally test all the ex- redo all the experiments yourself So to some extent, you have to have some faith and belief in uh, what others are saying. And another point is a lot of the current scientific theories haven't strictly been demonstrated. For example, they have an idea that the first life came from chemicals, there are lots of proposals and theories and speculations about how it happened. and But none of them have won general acceptance in the scientific world, and none of them have been worked out in complete detail. So in the textbooks, uh, they insist that life came from chemicals, even though they haven't demonstrated it either practically in the laboratory by producing from uh, chemicals a self-reproducing organism, or neither have they really sketched it out in detail theoretically how it may have happened by giving some description of exactly what chemicals combined and exactly what way to to produce exactly what first living thing. So, whether you're talking about mainstream ideas or alternative ideas, there may be an element of belief or faith there.
0: Of course, yes. I, you it, it can't, like you said, you can't reduplicate everything. It, it, it takes, uh, it would take a ridiculous sum of time to do it. You couldn't do it in your lifetime because these are many lifetimes to establish this amount of knowledge. And you have to start from some point. The other thing is the point that you're making as far as creation, um, uh, the the whole notion of, uh, of Darwinism versus creationism. Uh, the thing is who created the elements or what created the elements, who put into the design of the elements the manners in which these things um, uh, conduct themselves. or that whatever is in a natural world conducts itself. These, these properties, these laws of nature, what institute them? What put them in motion? Where, uh, you know, this is the thing, that the point of origin of what? Are we talking a material world? Are we talking the origin of life itself or the origin of origin? You know, uh, I think I personally prefer to look at a much deeper point and that being the point of it all, and um, that can't be even contemplated as far as uh, uh, spewed out in some sort of rational sense by anything scientific. It can't be.
6: Yeah, I think science can give some pointers. In my book, Human Devolution, A Vedic Alternative to Darwin's Theory, I touch on Some of these issues, Um, for example, the issue of consciousness. Today, many scientists are going to say that consciousness is just produced by chemicals in the brain. If you organize the chemicals in the brain in a sufficiently complex way, we're told they generate consciousness, but only temporarily and only in association with the brain only in connection with the brain however from my point of view consciousness is something that can exist independently of the brain independently of matter I don't think consciousness is produced by matter matter doesn't produce consciousness but consciousness can become covered by matter so basically we don't as conscious beings we don't evolve up from matter rather we devolve or come down from a level of pure consciousness where consciousness comes into association with matter becomes covered by matter that's what i mean by devolution we don't evolve up from matter we devolve from the position of pure consciousness and there's a whole lot of scientific evidence supporting the idea that consciousness can exist apart from the body uh, a large part of that evidence comes from medical studies of out-of-body experiences you know, there are times when a person should be completely unconscious as as during as in uh, as during a heart attack you know, the heart stops beating blood stops flowing to the brain medical instruments show that the brain waves stop so at A moment like that a person should be completely unconscious yet many people in that condition report separating from their bodies and they look down and they see what the doctors and nurses are doing to revive them there was an American heart surgeon a cardiologist named Dr. Michael Sabum who heard some of these reports from his patients and he wondered Are these people telling the truth, or are they just making up stories? So he decided to do a medical investigation. And what he did is this. He took about 25 people who had reported these out-of-body experiences, and he interviewed them very carefully, asking them to provide every detail of what they saw the doctors and nurses doing when they were looking down at them from this out of body perspective. And then he compared what they said to the reports kept by the physicians and nurses who had treated them. And in every yeah, you know, in every case it's a little bit different. The treatment is not exactly the same. And you know, the patients don't see, you know, these detailed records kept by the doctors and nurses who treated them. So Sabin found that the reports given by the people who had had undergone these out-of-body experiences matched the records kept by the doctors and nurses who had treated them. So he had some objective criteria for saying that actually these people are giving true reports they're not just making up stories so there is evidence that a conscious self can't exist apart from matter it's it's not simply produced you know, yes. by the combination of chemicals in the brain and and that means that it's it's Consciousness that is primary, not matter, uh, and that is an important fact that much of modern science has completely ignored. They've tried to base everything on the combinations of molecules, but even even there, they're missing something. as yes. you were rightly pointed out, well, where did the chemicals come from, and what what makes them have that ability to combine uh, like that? Uh, physicists have pointed out that there is a very exact ratio between the mass of the proton and the mass of the electron in the atom. You know, the electron and proton are subatomic particles that make up atoms. And if the, there's, the, the, there's a ratio of the mass of the proton... To the mass of the electron. If this ratio were different, even slightly, then physicists tell us we would not have stable atoms. There wouldn't be any molecules you know, to combine together you know, to form uh, living the bodies of living things. So, right. so that is an important fact that you alluded to and what you were saying in the run-up to this question that we're discussing here. So actually there are a lot of these ratios of natural forces and elements uh, that have been set at very precise values, which if they differed even slightly, would cause us not to have the type of universe that's capable of supporting living things. So, so that's a very I, important point. How it came sure. to be like that—that uh, that, that's uh, an important question right there.
0: Sure. Purely out of chance, purely out of hit and miss, on on what an infinite uh, uh, random um, experiment.
6: Well, chance. the only the only thing they can propose is that there have been millions and millions of universes, an infinite number of universes produced that in each one of them, these uh, ratios of natural forces and values of uh, equations and things like that have been set to different values and we just happen to have won the lottery and we just happen to live in the universe where all these things by chance happen to be adjusted like that but
0: yeah.
6: that's but not again a scientific proposal for one. No, thing. it isn't.
0: No. Because Marcus,
6: who, yeah. yeah, because how how or uh,
0: uh, who instructed that to be the manner of uh, process of elimination? In other words, put that ball in motion to say, okay, well, let's keep trying and punching at it, and you know, pulling the uh, the lever on the slot machine. Well, well, who who came up with that? What came up with that in the first place?
6: Yeah, they just kind of put the problem back another step. Yeah, where do you get this, whatever it is, that's producing millions of universes? That's that's, uh, you know, that's a bigger question even.
0: Yes, consciousness—the
6: one, the one they're trying to solve.
0: What I find interesting also, Michael, is research, and and I have a tendency to 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 accept this as making more sense, that the mind functions more like uh, an antennae or an antenna, and uh, consciousness is being, uh, consciousness out there is being perceived here in us, uh, and then the brain itself functioning at different levels thereafter, uh, much like the computer. Um, What I find so interesting in a debate that I'm sure you've heard many a time with uh, uh, Deepak uh, uh, Chopra and um, Michael Shermer at uh, Caltech. I just love the interaction there and the notion that Shermer keeps going, alluding to, which is that of, well, it's just your mind. There is no consciousness. There is no consciousness. It's just the mind. Yet, even scientific, even scientifically, uh, And and with greater research uh, and more updated research, we're we're learning differently. No, that's that's wrong.
6: Yeah, well, I, I think one can approach these things on an abstract level. But in reality, consciousness is something we all experience. We wouldn't be having this conversation unless... I were conscious, you were conscious, and all the people listening were conscious. Consciousness is not something abstract. It's the most real feature of our existence. It doesn't require any faith or belief. It's something that we all experience every day of our lives, and where that consciousness came from is... A fundamental question. Now, people like Schirmer are going to propose, well, it, it just comes from uh, chemicals interacting in the brain. And you mentioned he said it came from mind. But then what is mind, after all? I think I like to think of this whole question of the relationship between matter, mind, and consciousness In terms of a computer analogy, I would say that, say if you have your computer hardware, uh, that's there. But it doesn't operate unless there's some software that allows a, a user to interact, a conscious user to interact with the hardware. So you've got the conscious user, you've got the software or the operating system and the programs. And then you've got the hardware, you know, the computer hardware. So I would say our gross physical body is like the computer hardware. The mind is like the software that allows the conscious self to interact with the machinery of the body. So, but there are three distinct things. And uh, just like the computer software doesn't produce the user, uh, actually it's the user or a person like the user who makes the software and the hardware. So in the same way, the conscious self is the primary feature of this whole thing. Now, to consciousness originally exists on its own in a world that is purely conscious, but if it comes becomes associated with a vehicle made of matter, it needs something that will allow it to interact with that machinery, and that is the mind, uh, the subtle mind that allows the conscious self to interact with the machinery of the body, and that mind element has some very unusual powers some people would call call it paranormal powers, uh, things like psychokinesis and remote viewing and things of that sort. So, and there's a lot of scientific evidence for those things right so uh, so ultimately however, we're beings of pure consciousness. And that's what
0: I would think, you know.
6: And uh, we that, look, I think it's channeled through the mind into the body, and uh, as you were saying. And I think that's the best way to, to look at the whole relationship between consciousness, mind, and matter.
0: Yes. The body is a remarkable vehicle, a, a, a piece of technology in its own right. And... Um, the consciousness is—it's this—is where its home is. Call it soul, call it whatever. One thing I—that your research, unlike so many others, um, is the, the manner of your perspective, looking at things and from a non-Western point of view. And this—this this is um, really a dynamic from as far as your work goes. Uh, you took—you yeah. took, you, you took uh, an interest in the uh, uh, Hindu uh, Eastern uh, of philosophy and then ventured into it seems um, as far as your transition correct me wrong, into an understanding of um, archaeology, uh, the history of man our origins, etc from that perspective opening up a better understanding of texts that are far older than what we have in the West and uh, creating a new, Uh, path of enlightenment, I think, as far as from uh, an archaeological point of view.
6: Yeah, you're absolutely right about that, Sam. Um, In 1973 and 74, I began to encounter the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, and I became very interested in them, and of course, if you become interested in a topic, it's good to have a teacher. So I... Found a spiritual master, a guru from India who was very knowledgeable about these ancient Sanskrit writings. So I studied uh, a type of yoga through uh, this guru. It's called bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion. But as part of that, I began looking deeply into these ancient Sanskrit writings. And as far as archaeology is concerned, here's how I got got into that topic, in these ancient Sanskrit writings, I read accounts of human populations that were existing on Earth millions and millions of years ago. It was something quite different than I had learned from any of my teachers in high school or university. So uh, I found that not only the ancient Sanskrit writings, but the writings of most of the world's ancient wisdom traditions have accounts of extreme human antiquity in them. They're all pretty much in agreement on that point. So I had to think, well, is that just mythology? Is that just some stories invented thousands of years ago by whoever wrote these books? Or is there perhaps some truth to this idea of extreme human antiquity? So I thought, uh, well, uh, let me do a little research into the history of archaeology and see if there are any reports of archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity. And the first place I looked was in the current textbooks of archaeology. And there, I didn't find any evidence for extreme human antiquity. I just found evidence that supports the current dominance theory of human origin, uh, the, the Darwinian evolutionary theory. So I decided not to stop with the textbooks. I thought, okay, let me look into the original scientific reports, because the textbooks are based on original scientific research. So I thought, let me look beyond the textbooks. Let me look into the original scientific reports published by professional scientists in the professional scientific literature from the time of Darwin up to the present. And not just in English, but in many other languages. I have a reading knowledge of German and Russian and Italian and French and Spanish and many other European languages. So I started doing that research and it continued for about eight years. And what I found was that in the original scientific reports, there are many reports of human bones, human artifacts, human footprints, going back many, many millions of years. And this evidence contradicts the textbook theories of human origins. Now, if you just look at the current textbooks, the current theories seem quite reasonable because the textbooks present certain facts. They appear to be going along with the theories that are presented, and you think, okay, that that must be true. The problem is the textbooks aren't presenting all of the facts. They're only presenting the facts that go along with the current theories. If the textbooks included all the facts that have been uncovered by archaeologists and geologists and paleontologists, uh, it wouldn't add up to what the current theories are telling us because there are many reports in the professional scientific literature of discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, human footprints going back many, many millions of years. So, the whole reason, now I wouldn't have had any reason, unless I'd studied the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, I wouldn't have had any reason to question what I found in the textbooks. I would have, I mean, I, I learned the textbook theories when I went to high school, when I went to university. I, I wouldn't have had any reason to question them until I read these ancient Sanskrit writings of India, which present a different idea about human antiquity. So I collected all of these reports that I discovered in those eight years of research in my book, Forbidden Archaeology. And after people read that book, they began to ask me, okay, if you've got all of this evidence that contradicts the Darwinian theory of human evolution, then where do, do you think human beings came from? How did we come into existence? So to answer that question, I wrote the book Human Devolution, a Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory, because my ideas for an alternative were also inspired by my studies in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, which put great emphasis Uh, the reality of consciousness existing apart from matter. And these Vedic teachings also propose that there is some higher intelligence in the cosmos that is responsible for a lot of the order and complexity that we observe in the world around us. So in that book, Human Devolution, I propose that before we even ask the question, where did human beings come from we should first of all ask the question what is a human being now today many scientists are going to say that a human being or any other living thing is just a machine made of molecules as the famous english evolutionist and atheist richard dawkins says We are survival machines, robot vehicles programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. So, of course he said blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. So, uh, So that's what most scientists today think the human organism is. It's just a machine made of molecules and if the molecules in the brain are arranged in a sufficiently complex way, they produce consciousness. But I think if we look at all the scientific evidence, we'll see that it's more reasonable to say that a human being is made of three things. Consciousness, mind, and matter. You know, So molecules are there. That's part of what a human being is. But beyond that, there is the subtle mind element, which has some very unusual powers, like remote viewing telekinesis mind over matter things like that and beyond the mind there is the conscious self which can exist apart from matter apart from mind and when i when i speak of mind and consciousness i don't mean temporary byproducts of bioelectrical activity in the brain as most scientists today would say i mean independent substances with their own reality their own independent existence apart from matter so under that picture of reality uh we can understand that it's consciousness that is primary we don't evolve up from matter we devolve or come down from pure consciousness and this is an idea that's very prominent in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, which have provided a lot of the inspiration for my ideas, both in terms of archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity and alternative theories of human origins based on consciousness. Now this idea that we are made of matter, mind, and consciousness suggest that we live in a multi-level cosmos. There's a level of the cosmos that's dominated by ordinary matter. It's inhabited by beings adapted to the conditions there, and that's where we find ourselves now. But beyond that, I believe there's a level of the cosmos dominated by subtle mental energies And it's inhabited by beings adapted to the conditions there. And people in different cultures have different names for these beings. They call them angels or gods or goddesses or devas or gene. Uh, People in different cultures have different names for them. And then beyond that, I think there is a level of pure consciousness that's inhabited by beings adapted to the conditions there so that means we're part of a whole cosmic hierarchy of beings the universe is inhabited at all different levels so uh, i tried to communicate some of these things and the series, Ancient Aliens, which has aired on the History Channel. I've tried to give a a Vedic perspective on extraterrestrials. So yes, there is extraterrestrial intelligent life. There is intelligent life from other parts of the cosmos, other levels of the cosmos, other dimensions of the cosmos. And these intelligent life forms from other parts of the cosmos have interacted with the human life forms on on this planet over the vast periods of time. Of course, I have an expanded conception of what an extraterrestrial means. Some people conceive of extraterrestrials as simply flesh and blood machines made of molecules from other parts of the universe, so I think such things do exist. But I think, in addition to that, there are the more subtle types of extraterrestrials that people would call by different names, such as gods, goddesses, angels, gene things of that sort. So I, I have an expanded conception of what extraterrestrials mean, and yeah. I also have an expanded conception of what UFOs mean. Among those who are studying UFOs, there's a, a basic division. One group is called the nuts and bolts group that looks at UFOs as just machines made of ordinary metallic elements like steel and iron and things like that, copper, but just from some other part of the universe. But there's another group of researchers who sees paranormal elements to the whole UFO phenomenon. and I'd have to put myself in that second group. The ancient Sanskrit writings speak of spacecraft called Vimanas, and there were different types of Vimanas. Some were made of metal, and they were used to operate on this level of reality, but then there were other Vimanas or spacecraft made of mental energies and finally, there were Vimanas made of pure consciousness. And they could penetrate through different levels and dimensions of the cosmos. So, uh, all of these ideas of mine, whether we're talking about archaeology or alternative theories of human origins or ideas about extraterrestrial intelligent life forms and spacecraft. Uh, come from the ancient Sanskrit writings of India. I've gotten a tremendous amount of inspiration from them. But I don't think I have a a monopoly on truth. I think similar ideas can be found in the teachings of a lot of the world's ancient wisdom traditions, whether we're talking about Christianity or Judaism or uh, Islam. I think they all have uh, an esoteric aspect to them that would include some of the kinds of things that i've been talking about
0: right i, I, I what i what I admire is the fact that to understand something in fact I, it is so strange in fact it may be comical but uh, every time I would see dancing with wolves, I would think of you because you actually <laughs> delved into the culture to uh, understand what things what things are being said, how things are being represented, and uh, you took a different journey. Now, um, if people would do that in the course of, say, for instance, uh, an interest in archaeology or anthropology or whatever, uh, uh, being a Stanley and, uh, and going to Africa, but, but actually stay there, become part of the culture and not just come walking in as the brave white man and you know, dictating in the terms of their reality, but trying to f- feel and understand what it is that they are um, trying to say, and then um, analyze the culture deeper. I think it's hard to do because, first of all, genetically you're not the same, um, but um, I mean, it, culturally you're not the same uh, from birthright, but still, in all, you have you have that tempo already uh, moving that gives you a better opportunity to analyze
6: Yeah, I I think experiential involvement with an ancient wisdom tradition, in this case, uh, the bhakti yoga tradition of ancient India has been fundamental for my approach to the world. But the thing I like about it is that it doesn't make exclusive claims to truth. It, you know, my guru used to say uh, we should be able to recognize gold wherever we see it. In other words, like you could take gold and you could stamp the symbols of different countries on it, but if it's really gold, it doesn't matter what symbol that you have uh, stamped on it. Uh, you could, you know, some. Gold coins have the symbol of South Africa, you know, the Kruger Rams on it. And then some gold coins are from Canada. They have you know, maple leaf stamped on them. Some gold coins are from the United States. They have American symbols stamped on them. But uh, if it's really gold, then it really doesn't matter what symbols stamped on it because gold has its own value. So I yes. think uh, real spirituality is also like that it, it, it can be found in a lot of different places uh, you have to be able to recognize it but uh, if, if it's there then it, it really doesn't matter as far as I'm concerned what label is put on it it could be Islam or Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism it, it really doesn't matter uh, what labels on it just as long as the real thing is there and what i would say the real thing is is understanding that we're all beings of pure consciousness Uh, none of us are beings made of matter we may be in vehicles made of matter but in our essential nature we are beings of pure consciousness we're all coming from the same source which means we're all related we're all in this together we're all part of the same spiritual family there's a source of all conscious beings who different people may know by different names according to their culture and language but ultimately there is one source of all conscious beings who's behind the whole thing and if we recognize these things then I don't think it matters what we call ourselves I mean I found as something that works for me, but it, it it involves seeing truth wherever it manifests, not just in one's own group or religion or nation or race or class or whatever, but recognizing truth wherever it, it can be found and accepting that on a certain level, on the level of pure consciousness, we're all related. You know, we shouldn't be dividing ourselves into different groups and getting into needless conflicts with each other based on superficial identities.
0: Yes, and unfortunately, religion is, has been just one more reason to hate another another man. And, yeah, that, uh, that,
6: that, that and happens. And it
0: shouldn't be, yeah. And once you find something echoing in there at the spiritual level, it that doesn't exist anymore. It shouldn't exist. Anymore. And, um, that's uh, you know that humbling feeling or humbling tone uh, is a truth in itself.
6: Yeah, and I, that, I agree with you there, one hundred percent.
0: You know what gets me is is the whole notion of what is human. What is you know here we are. Stumbling across artifacts of of some of something being manufactured by an intelligence that we could assume to be uh, human, but what is human? Uh, is what defines human? And uh, I think that you know you, you got into the three components, but where in say for instance does uh, does the notion of say for instance the ideal of uh, um, of us being gregarious and working for a greater uh, a greater uh, element than just ourselves to be sacrificial and stuff like that. Uh, th- is that part of you think the, the mind or is it the consciousness?
6: Ultimately it extends to consciousness because ultimately all conscious beings are coming from the same source. There is a source of all conscious beings. Now, for example, We see that we are conscious, individual, and personal, each one of us. Uh, Each one of us understands I am consciousness. My consciousness is different from that of another person. But I'm conscious, I'm individual, I'm personal. But we should be able to perceive that we have a fundamental unity as beings of pure consciousness and that there is a source of all conscious beings which is also conscious, individual, and personal. And ultimately, uh, we're meant to exist in harmony with all conscious beings and with the source of all conscious beings. Now, if we depart from that original condition of harmonious existence with all conscious beings and the source of all conscious beings uh, then we're in a different mentality and the characteristic of that mentality is selfishness that's the opposite of harmonious loving relationships so, when that happens, we can no longer exist in that level of pure consciousness, which is requires this kind of harmonious existence with each other. And we come to this level of reality, and there we re- receive vehicles you know, that we call bodies, and the human vehicle is one of them. And... In that human vehicle, we've got a choice. We can either try to understand our original nature as beings of pure consciousness existing harmoniously and cooperatively with each other, or we can get deeper and deeper involved in trying to dominate and control and exploit matter in competition with each other. And the so there are basically two types of people in the world. One type of person is trying to understand we're all beings of pure consciousness. We have an existence apart from matter. The main purpose of human life isn't to produce as many to produce and consume as many material things as possible. We should be trying to satisfy our material needs of life in the most simple, natural, and efficient way possible while putting most of our human energy into developing the resource of consciousness, understanding that uh, we're all related to each other on the platform of pure consciousness in relationship with the source of all conscious beings which is the source of us all so that's one type of person another type of person is trying to get more and more involved in selfishness more and more involved trying to dominate control and exploit matter and the bodies of other living things and in that process uh, they get into conflict with each other. They divide themselves into different groups to compete with each other for controlling, dominating, and exploiting material resources. And uh, mm-hmm. we see that that type of person is very prominent in the world today. I think those are the, the, the people that.
0: Yeah, but it seems as though that individual. Is the one that has set up the parameters of this so-called reality. You could see this in, in, say, for instance, the, um, and um, the, in the economy. First of all, we have a system that bases a currency on stuff, and and the greatest value of, of that we put forth is time that we all have. We all have a limited amount of time. There, that is the most precious of all resources. There is it, it, it is the greatest of all of our commodities that we'll ever come across in our life is our time and what we do with it and what we achieve with it. And 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 then, like as you're saying, how we achieve with it in in the higher self at the conscious level for the, the greater good of all.
6: Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, we are in a situation today in which those who are in that mood of dominating, controlling, exploiting matter in competition with each other either individually or in terms of groups is the dominant group in the world today that's setting the cultural, political, economic, military agenda, you know, for you know this world that we live in. But there are others who are trying to establish a different agenda. Of course, they're not in the position today to actually do that. They have to do it in terms of uh, alternative communities, alternative philosophies, and things like that. And I think one problem is is that you know, the supporters of the current theories have a government enforced monopoly in the education systems and I think there should be some diversity in the public education systems in terms of the ideas that are presented to students. Now the supporters of the dominant ideas have the ability to see that only their ideas are taught And the ideas that they're presenting are very materialistic. They're presenting the idea that, well, we're just machines made of molecules. We're evolved apes. We're just purely material beings, and we should just focus on producing and consuming more and more material things. And uh, in doing so, First of all, we're destroying the environment, we're consuming the earth's resources at an unsustainable rate, and second of all, we're, uh, we're, we're not only machines made of molecules according to the teachings of the dominant theories, we're machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival. And therefore, I think we see a lot of conflict on all levels of human society. We see conflict among individuals, conflict among classes, conflict among nations, conflict among religions, as you were mentioning before. So it is a very unfortunate situation. And because people are divided into groups like that and are competing with each other for survival, uh, some people take more than their fair share of the wealth that's generated by human society. A lot of people have come to understand that uh, people in the upper levels of the economic system have taken more than their fair share by unfair means. A lot of people have come to understand that the world's current financial crisis has its roots in a situation where people in the financial institutions were creating financial products that were based on cheating, really, Uh, understanding that they were selling financial products Based on mortgages that they knew that people would never be able to pay, and they, therefore they they sold these uh, financial products all over the world, uh, taking money for them that they uh, and giving people uh, these financial products, investments that were going to go bust. So, and and we still see it going on today because of these kinds of things. There are economic and financial problems all over the world. Uh, you know, Banks are, are going to go under. There's huge amounts of unemployment all over the world. It's not that there's not enough financial resources to employ everybody and to equitably distribute uh, the wealth that's there in human society, but the way things are structured now, it's very difficult to get to a point like that.
0: Right. Well, it's the structure that is inherently flawed. If we could also take and realize that conservation uh, and preservation is a commodity, is if, if that service to others, that there are other things that we can do to earn a living to warrant a substance and, and, and wealth other than the, what the way we bought into the system. It is very flawed. It is inher- inherently flawed. It's based upon production, uh, planned obsolescence, greed, and everything that, that is counterintuitive to anything that would function in a society where people function together.
6: Yeah. Well, I think the root of it, however, goes deeper to the conception of self, Yeah. Uh, which is being promoted to people in the education system uh, by the supporters of the current theories, which are very materialistic, and they have a government-enforced monopoly in the education system. Uh, the, the, the values and, that we have in human society to a large extent depend upon the answers that we give to the fundamental questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? For example, if, if I think I am an American man, then I will behave like that. So it's my concept of identity that helps set my goals and values. So the kinds of overly materialistic values and goals that human society now has grow out of an incorrect concept of self that's being promoted in the current education systems. As I said, they're promoting the idea of we are machines made of matter, basically, in competition with each other for survival. So if you've got that mentality, then automatically you're going to think that to produce and consume more and more material things is the main purpose of human life because you've defined human identity in a, in a purely materialistic way that we are machines made of matter in competition with each other for survival. This is what's being promoted in the biology classrooms all over the world under the name of the Darwinian theory of evolution. And it's therefore not surprising that our you know if you've, if you've indoctrinated people in this sense of identity, how to identify yourself, it's not surprising you know that you know they're they're going to be very materialistic. They're going to overconsume and overproduce, and destroy the world's environment, and get involved in all kinds of conflicts at all levels of human society. And it's not going to be surprising that some groups are going to gain the financial system to their benefit, to the detriment of others who are going to experience unemployment and loss of income and things of that sort so to get to to get to a different situation you think you have to go right back to the root which is the sense of identity and say if we had a different sense of identity that yes we're all beings of pure consciousness we we don't have simply material needs let's let's uh, live lives of voluntary simplicity and you know, just produce and consume what we actually need uh, in the most simple, natural, and efficient way possible and let's not divide ourselves up into all kinds of conflicting races, nations, classes, uh, religions. Let's understand that we're all being superior consciousness, all coming from the same source we're all in this together we can work things out together if, if and and we we should we shouldn't take more from the earth than, than it can actually provide and let's distribute the wealth fairly because we're all part of the same spiritual family then and, and let's not cheat each other and fight with each other and destroy the environment and the process then I think all that flows from having a proper conception of self, and all these other things flow from having the wrong conception of self.
0: Right. Now, in, in, in say, for instance, from what you've read, is there any indication contra, contrary to, say, for instance, uh, that this place, this, this realm of consciousness, this material world is there any indication that this could be more theater, where it could be where we exercise our um, our, our lower self, our um, more deviant self, uh, where we conflict and and pain and strife is um, uh, purpose? Is there anything that you've ever stumbled across or uh, in your research that can and again, this is, isn't something tangible, but something
6: that is more intuitive. Well, I think the, the, this level of reality offers two opportunities. It offers the opportunity to exercise that lower self, if that's what we want to do. It provides a field of activity for that, for cheating, conflict, exploitation domination over exploitation of the earth's resources that opportunity is there because we have free will so the opportunity to behave in that way is there but there's also opportunities on this level of reality to elevate consciousness to understand we're all in this together we're all related we can live in a, a more uh, in a way that doesn't destroy the earth's resources that doesn't result in all these financial problems that doesn't result in needless conflict among groups so i think both opportunities are there uh it just depends upon the choices that we make whether we're going to take the lead from those wisdom sources that are guiding us to the understandings that I'm talking about, the positive understandings, or whether we're going to go along with the sources of knowledge that are going to lead us in the opposite direction. So I think right. both, both opportunities are there. It just depends on which way each of us wants to go, uh, either you know, as individuals or collectively.
0: So a constant state of duality
6: is always going to be
0: omnipresent. we
6: We always have choice, and we have to live with the results of our choices. So if we make the right choices, then things are going to get better. If we keep making the wrong choices, then we're going to get more of the same. We're going to see more economic problems and financial problems, more environmental destruction, and more conflict. So, if we want to go in another direction, then we need new ideas.
0: A now, new on, that, itself. On, that, on that note of destruction, and say, for instance, uh, uh, have you seen, and I'm sure you have, because <laughs> part of the, it seems all cultures speak of, of periods of change, of destruction, uh, etc. And uh, do you feel we're on the threshold or are in a period of um, change as far as that goes?
6: Yeah, well, according to the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, time is cyclical. It goes through cycles. And this is an idea found not just in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, but the ancient Greeks and Romans had this idea. A lot of different cultures, the Mayan culture, in Central America have the idea that time goes through cycles and in the the course of those cycles conditions change for example in the course of a year in the temperate countries uh, we go through cycles climatic changes. There's spring and then there's summer and then there's fall, and then there's winter, and then comes another spring, another summer, another fall, another winter. So in the different parts of that yearly cycle, there are different conditions, uh, and we have to adapt to them. You know, if winter is coming, well, we have to make some preparation for that. Uh, just because it's going to become cold doesn't mean we have to freeze to death if, you know, if we make adequate preparation. So, similarly, there are larger cycles of time, according to the ancient wisdom traditions, and according to the ancient Sanskrit writings, just like there's a, a cycle of four seasons, there's a cycle of four ages, uh, the whole cycle lasts about 4,320,000 years, Uh, of our earth years and the cycles begin with a golden age where people are not divided into different classes people are living simply and naturally in a paradisical environment which is very conducive to spiritual contemplation and the necessities of life are just produced naturally by the earth in abundance there aren't any climatic disturbances or environmental problems everything's very nice sort of like living in tahiti or hawaii all the time or something like that so um, that goes on for a million and a half years roughly and then the second season comes and things get a little bit more materialistic and people start dividing themselves into classes. They start living in villages and towns, uh, not close to nature anymore. And, but they're still basically good. So even though they're living in cities and towns and they're dividing themselves into classes, still they're, they're, they're basically very good. And that goes on for another million years or so. And then comes the next age, which is called the Dwapara Yuga, and there uh, conflict begins entering into human society. Uh, the the people living in the different towns and countries and villages start competing with each other in very violent ways. And they're you start getting wars and economic problems and things like that and then finally in the fourth age it gets very those things which are just begin in the previous age get very much worse in this age and that's called the age of kali or the kali yuga and according to the vedic cosmological calendar It began about 5,000 years ago and will continue for another 427,000 years. And during this age of Kali, there will be increasing social and environmental disturbances. As we see in the world around us, I think we can all see that the environmental disturbances have been increasing, uh, that there have been... extremes of heat and cold. There have been more tornadoes than people have seen. There have been tsunamis and earthquakes and things of that sort. They seem to be increasing in tempo and intensity. And some of this is attributed by people to global warming. But in the The ancient Sanskrit writings don't speak about just global warming. They speak about extremes of temperature, extremes of heat and cold. So that's actually what we're experiencing. We're not experiencing an overall global warming. We're experiencing extremes of heat, extremes of cold, uh, which is, so what these writings predict is more what we're actually seeing. And we see increasing social disturbances in the world uh, we're, we're seeing that go on, too. So that's all just going to increase as time goes on. It's not going to be any world-ending catastrophe, but there is going to be increasing social and environmental disturbance. But just because say it's going to rain, it doesn't mean you have to get wet. You can take steps to protect yourself and others. And so yes, there, there are going to be changes coming and according, as I said, according to the predictions and according to what we see it's going to be a time of increasing social and environmental disturbance. Gradually increasing
0: right now uh, as far as your research goes now where are you headed and what do you have an interest in looking more into I could see the consciousness aspect is, is something that weighs heavily on you and I think everybody at this stage uh, that is serious about this type of research has seemed to be heading or am I wrong it seems to we're throwing more into that looking at something even far deeper than before.
6: Yes, I think you're, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, you know, my first research was in stones and bones, but it kind of inevitably leads to consciousness, and in my forbidden archaeology research, I was looking at human bones, human artifacts that are millions and millions of years old, so I was writing about those things, but then people began to naturally ask, well, okay, if you've got all this evidence that contradicts the current theories of human origins, where do we go now? So I, I I wrote that book, Human Devolution, and I said, well, I mean, we've got to, before we even talk about the question of human origins, you know, we've got to talk about, well, what are we as human beings first? And As I said, many scientists now are going to propose we're just machines made of matter, but I see that a human being is a combination of matter, mind, and consciousness. And of the three, it's consciousness that is primary, that is most important. So I think you're right. Uh, Although we may begin our research looking into archeological evidence or physical evidence or chemical evidence, inevitably, if we trace out the threads, it's going to lead us back to this question of, consciousness and i think there's evidence that we are all beings of pure consciousness and that there is a source of all conscious beings that is also conscious individual and personal so it, it all all of these areas of research i think inevitably are going to converge on these questions related to consciousness and design and intelligence and things of that sort uh, so i'm Pursuing the different lines of research, I'm also I'm continuing uh, research into archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity. I'm continuing research uh, related to mind and consciousness. I'm continuing uh, research, uh, delving into the ancient Sanskrit writings of India and looking for connections with other wisdom traditions. So it's all ongoing as 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 far as I'm concerned, and. I think uh, you rightly said it, it. It all tends to converge on this question of consciousness.
0: I, I, this is something that echoes almost in everybody that I, I speak to today. You know, it's, uh, when, when I give presentations on UFOs, it always ends up when people say, "Well, well, why are why is this why is this so secretive?" And then I think you know the bottom line to everything is. It's not so much about them, but who we are, what we are, and why we are. And you echoed that very point. Uh, and this is where we really need to do the research, or at least try to come with, come up with some idea. Um, another thing is you're on the road so much. You're across the world. You're all over the place. What have you seen that you found yourself saying, wow, now this is interesting and interesting. Uh, riveting and new. What is it that is coming out from either research, discovery, uh, or just in in, in, uh, engaged conversation? What is it that you're seeing or have seen, say, for instance, in the last uh, year or so?
6: Well, earlier this year, I went on a lecture tour of India, which was very good for me because a lot of my ideas come from the ancient Sanskrit writings of India so it was uh, interesting for me to present these ideas at scientific institutions and universities uh, all over India but it was also interesting for me during the breaks that I had between lectures in different parts of the country to visit sacred sites and ancient temples all over the country. Uh, one place I visited was the Ellora Caves, which are in northern India. And there, there are 50 temples that have been carved into the side of a mountain. Uh, it's a, a mountain of solid stone. and there's one huge temple there that's carved out of a solid block of stone, like a solid cube of stone cut out of the side of the mountain. Uh, and just amazing, elaborate temple just carved out of the solid rock of the, the, the stone with all kinds of halls and pillars and rooms just carved out of a solid piece of rock. This is the, the Kailash temple. Uh, temple at the uh, Alora cave temple site. In what does it California.
0: date to? What is it uh, it's date not
6: to? very old. It's only a, about uh, 1,000 to 1,500 years old, but the architecture is just amazing. I really don't, I mean, I, I suppose the idea is that people were just there chipping uh, the stone with little tools or something, but uh, I'm just had to, I was just overwhelmed with the place, and I, you know, I, I just had to think, well, there may have been something a little supernatural involved in the production of a, of a structure like that, which I think is pretty unique in the world. You don't see, you know, it's like finding uh, a whole skyscraper carved out of a solid block of stone. Of <laughs> course, we have little hints of things like that, like Mount Rushmore or something, where you've got these huge faces of American presidents carved out of the side of a mountain. But you know what these people did is just carve a huge, elaborate temple with all kinds of rooms and halls and pillars, you know, out of solid stone. So I think that was uh, it was pretty amazing for me to say see that. And another uh, experience I had uh, was in the United States earlier this year. As I said, I went on a a lecture tour of a lot of universities in the Midwest. And what, what I find is interesting is that there are lots of people, whether they're students or scientists or ordinary people, who are moving in the same direction, kind of away from the kinds of things that we were talking about and people are becoming more and more interested in uh, at least a certain segment of the population is becoming more and more interested in developing their spirituality through contemplation or prayer or yoga or meditation and and in a lot of different traditions whether we're talking about Christianity, Islam or Buddhism or Judaism you, know, you have those who are interested in Kabbalah the more esoteric aspect of it so I think there's a, a lot of people who are becoming more and more interested in the more esoteric side of spirituality which I think is interesting and I think there are a lot of Researchers in different parts of the world who are maybe not going on exactly the same path, but I would say parallel or converging paths, coming to the same kinds of conclusions. Like, I don't see myself as kind of like a Lone Ranger sort of person, I see myself as part of a whole worldwide community of researchers who are pursuing different lines of research that are kind of converging on uh, a lot of these same ideas namely that we're not just machines made of molecules there is a conscious self that can exist apart from matter Uh, mind does have paranormal powers like psychokinesis and remote viewing and things like that there 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 is a, a very different history of the human presence on this planet that we're being taught now the education system see people trying to also uh, form alternative communities for living more simply and naturally I think that's a trend that's going to continue in the world more alternative communities eco-communities you know, being established so I think what I sense as I move around the world, is that we're in a time that comes... You know, we're we're in a situation that comes about every three or four hundred years where there is a paradigm shift or a, a, a renegotiation, as I prefer to call it, of our fundamental picture of reality. And I think there are lots of parties to that renegotiation. There are alternative archaeology researchers, paranormal researchers, spiritualists, Uh, there are UFO researchers, there are uh, alternative physics researchers, there are all kinds of researchers pursuing uh, these new areas of scientific investigation but I think ultimately it's all going to, we're we may be at what's called like a tipping point where there is going to be a, a, a major shift in the way that we look at our world, our place in it, our place in the cosmos. So mm. I'm kind of, I'm hopeful, I'm positive about that aspect of things.
4: All right. Thank you very much. Michael Cremo, everybody. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio.
3: you know, this is cause you want to be, leaving
1: time possessed to please you.
3: TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info
5: with the month of october and halloween fast approaching we want you the listener to share your creepy stories with us call us email us text us your personal story your local legends and folklore every week in october we'll read your story on air you can even read it yourself if you're not afraid call or text us at 708-966-9ufo 708-966-9836 or email john directly at ghost1 at bachelors-grove.com thank you and we look forward to your stories Welcome back to Thresholds and Other Realms. With us, we have the one and only Michael Clean. How you doing, Mike?
2: Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, how's everything been going? Uh, pretty good.
5: Since I saw you just a few days ago on our secret mission.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to announce it soon. But...
5: Yes, we're allowed to say it on Tuesday, I believe.
2: Well, technically, you know, we never signed a non-disclosure agreement, so.
5: Yeah, but this is a main network, and I, we don't want to make them mad.
2: <laughs> it's a well. It's a verbal. It's a verbal agreement.
5: <laughs> yeah, you can do it. I'm not making a main <laughs> network mad at me.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it'll be quite a surprise when it hits the uh, hits the information channels.
5: And hopefully, it's quite a hit. Oh yeah.
2: Oh yeah. I think so.
5: So, who well, you got for us today? You got a special guest with you today.
2: Yes, I have a very special guest, uh, Larry Wilson from Central Illinois. I recently published a book of his called Chasing Shadows and I think your listeners will find it very interesting. There's a lot of first-hand accounts in there. It's not one of these books that just is about the stories, the kind that I write. Mm -hmm. This is actually about Larry's own investigations and he's a very uh, experienced paranormal investigator. So welcome, Larry. Thank you for joining us. Hey Mike, uh, John, thanks for having me.
5: Thank you, Larry. How you doing?
2: I'm Doing real well. So why don't you just start out telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into paranormal investigation. Uh, and yeah, let's just start there with that. Well, um, actually, I was at one time a, a, a uh, private investigator. So uh, right
7: off the bat, I've always been curious about solving mysteries. But uh, uh, in the same uh, frame, I've, I've also ever since I was a child been interested in ghosts and things that go bump in the night. So a few years back, actually, eight years ago to be exact, um, I uh, took a, a, a haunted tour down in Alton, Illinois. And the uh, the guy that was given the tour, his name is Gary Hawkins, and Gary is a uh, longtime time paranormal investigator. And, uh, you know, being on a tour is one thing, and I still wasn't quite convinced that um, you know, that this stuff is for real, that things really happen. So I, I asked Gary, I said, you know, Gary, um, you know, come on, tell me the truth. I said, I know you're an investigator. When you go on these investigations, does, do, do things happen? And uh, Gary, uh, he kind of kind of smiled, but he said, uh, Larry, doesn't matter what I tell you does or doesn't happen, you know, you won't believe it unless you experience it for yourself. But he says, uh, what I will do is I'll invite you on a couple investigations if you'd like to go. And, you know, I said, Absolutely. So anyhow, uh, Gary invited me, but my thought was that I would go on a couple investigations, and uh, you know nothing would happen. Uh, I'd get it out of my system, that would be the end of it. Huh. But uh, Eight years later, I'm still at it. Things things happened. And uh, you things never get
5: happen- this out of your system.
7: <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, once you have that first experience, that's that's all you need. Uh, just knowing
2: that there's something else uh, you want to keep at it. Well, that's that's great. Um, now there's a lot of well-known places in your book, Chasing Shadows. Um, can you just give us an overview of some of the your favorites perhaps or some of the ones that really stand out Uh, well actually uh, yeah, the ones
7: in this this first book uh, most of them I would say are my favorites Uh, but uh, the ones that really stand out um, you know that first real experience you have especially when you're alone that's that's the one you really always remember but um, Anderson Cemetery which is in rural Christian County um, actually I, I'd, I'd always heard of this place. It was called, uh, a lot of the locals call it Graveyard. Graveyard
5: X, that one? Yes, yeah.
7: But I, I had no clue where it was. Well, it turns out it's only about nine miles from my house. And once I found out where it was, um, I talked to another gentleman that uh, had, had gone on a few paranormal investigations, and he planned on going out with me on a, I think it was a Tuesday night. And uh, so everything was all set, and I'm all, you know, revved up to go. Well, I, I uh, get a call that morning. And uh, the other fellow named Jamie, uh, Jamie says, you know, Larry, I can't go tonight. Well, you know, that was like, you know, saying Christmas was canceled to me. So <laughs> uh, I went ahead and uh, I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and do it by myself. i will just go ahead and go on out there. But uh, so I did, you know, and it was um, actually it was uh, early in the spring of the year, right before uh, the time change. And actually, I would kind of planned it that way because. This particular cemetery, it is patrolled by the local authorities and it's posted that you can't be in there after eight o'clock at night. So I wanted to get in there this particular week because that next weekend was when the time changed. And of course, then it's going to be lighter, more towards eight o'clock at night. Well, anyhow, um, I decided to go out there. And again, this was the first time I'd ever been anywhere by myself. And uh, uh, on the way out there, I don't know if you guys remember the old, the old, uh, Uh, movie, uh, The Ghost of Mr. Chicken. Yeah. I I had the exact feeling that Luther Higgs had. I mean, I wasn't shaking or anything, but I was nervous about going out there, because I've heard all the stories about this place, and it was just supposed to be extreme. Yeah, that's a
5: heck of a one to make your first one, actually.
7: You know, and actually, after the fact, I realized that, that, yeah, it really was, and I probably should have tried something a little bit simpler, but uh, I I guess there's, you know, nothing like seeing is believing and finding out for yourself. uh, So I did go out there, and when I got out there, of course, it was daylight, and Again, one of the reasons I wanted to be out there earlier was, you know, at, at night, once the sun goes down, the normal sounds of the evening, like, you know, birds chirping, even the wind wind blowing a leaf or a branch, um, it's going to sound spooky at night, and I wanted to hear all those sounds before, before it became dark, and uh, so I got out there, it was light, I set up my equipment early, uh, there's one particular part of that cemetery, and everybody calls it the triangulated area, and it came from a book that was you know, published um, years ago, but the reason they call it a triangul- tri- triangulated area is um, there's three, two stones, one is like a monument uh, the other is a arched stone and then there's actually a uh, like a concrete bench and it, they basically the points of those three uh, locations make up a triangle and most of the activity is said to take place within that triangle so I had set all my uh, camera equipment up and I'd kind of been just walking around waiting for it to get uh, dark out Well. About 6.15 or so was when it really started to get dark. And it was unbelievable because, you know, all night long the birds in this tree had just been chirping away. And as soon as it actually the sun went down, it was just like somebody hit a switch and everything stopped. I mean, it was dead, dead quiet. Um, so anyhow, I was probably out there maybe another half hour before um, I was just checking my video camera out and I, I stopped. And when I stopped, I... Could swear I felt and heard somebody walk by me, but there's nobody there. You know, it's completely, completely dark. Um, just me alone in the cemetery, nobody there. I knew nobody was out there, and I could see nobody went by me. And, uh, well, when this, uh, when this, actually what it kind of compares to is like uh, when you're walking down the sidewalk, not really paying attention, somebody passes you. You know, you can actually see them, but you can also feel them go by, and that's exactly what it felt like. So I immediately turned around and listened, and when I did that, on my opposite side, which would then, again, would have been my left side, um again something walked by me or went right by me and this happened three times so i turned back around the same thing i'm listening and on the third time when this happened um i'm just listening and i've kind of got the uh, cold chills then cause I'm, <laughs> something was there you know and you got that spooky feeling
5: on well, your and first you night out too my gosh <laughs>
7: exactly and uh, i'm not sure john or mike if, if you've been out to anderson before but it's it's basically almost completely surrounded by uh forests or timber mm-hmm. and, and uh but one side is uh, there's uh, there's a field on another side. But anyhow, it's it gets really dark out there pretty quick. But I was standing there just kind of standing still, listening, waiting for that thing to go by me again. But when I did that, um, it didn't go by me again. I was like mugged. I was punched in the back like somebody you know, just took their fists and just slammed me in the back, and it hit me hard enough that it knocked me forward and it knocked me off balance. And I mean, you talk about uh, cold sweat. It was uh, it was in the 30s, about 32, 33 degrees. But all of a sudden, just a hot flash went through me. Sweat started pouring off me, but it was a cold chill at the same time. And I tried to, t- I had a camera around my neck, and I immediately tried to snap some photos. And I'd probably only taken maybe five, 10 photos that night so far. Uh, I was waiting for the darkness. But anyhow, when I tried to take the picture, it showed, you know, that the battery was low, the flash wouldn't work. And uh, But later on, a few minutes later, it, the battery charged right back up. Yeah. Like that's that's that
5: perfectly have. normal, as I'm sure you know now.
7: <laughs> oh, absolutely. But, uh, you know, I, I've never forgot that. And actually, um, this may sound foolish, but I stayed out there about another 15 minutes, and then all of a sudden it hit me, you know, um, you've just been punched by something you can't see. And you don't know if it's playing with you or telling you to move along. And I thought, well, tonight maybe I should just move along. And, and I did, you know, but uh, all the sure. way Sure that's all <laughs> you think about. I mean, just, um, that couldn't have happened, but it did, you know. It's, well, you,
2: usually when you're punched by unseen hands, it's <laughs> going <good. laughs> a message to get out it, of there. Yeah,
5: it, it It's a some good sort of warning, usually.
7: <laughs> right. And, and another thing that happened in this place, it was that, this happened in, uh, in, uh, I believe it was uh, March of that year, March or April. I'm kind of getting lost on time here, but um, but then that fall, October, it was the Wednesday before Halloween, and this happened in, uh, it would have been 2008, I believe, but it was a Wednesday before Halloween, and another local investigator, uh, his name is Ed Osborne, he's well-respected around here as an investigator, uh, Ed went out there with me, and uh, we went out there at night again. It was dark, and uh, we're uh, walking around. Nothing happened, and I was at a a laser-pointed thermometer taking temperatures. The entire cemetery was 44 degrees that night. And, uh, I mean, all night long, we're getting ready to leave. It's like uh, quarter to eight. You're supposed to be out of there at eight o'clock. Well, I walked by the stone bench that I mentioned before that's part of that triangulated area, and when I walked by the bench, uh, the, the temperature started to drop on the thermometer. I mean, it was, again, originally 44 everywhere in the cemetery that I pointed at. at. It started dropping down the 30s, the 20s, the teens. It got a, as cold as 16 below zero. Oh, wow. So, I mean, and that's a 60 degree drop. Um, so the first thing I did, I thought, you know, this can't be possible. So I, I shut the uh, thermometer off, turned it back on, made sure, you know, I had it set on Fahrenheit and not Celsius. Um, checked the temperatures around the cemetery. Again, what I got was basically 43, 44 degrees everywhere. Uh, pointed it back in the spot right in front of the bench, and again, it started dropping, and it was below zero. Um, Ed and I finally left the cemetery about quarter after eight, 20 after eight, because, again, you know, we try to abide by the rules in these places, but we also know that the, the local authorities patrol it and. So we wanted to, you know, to hightail it. Well, that's an
5: important thing, too. I mean, kind of on a side note, people got to realize they got to follow the rules or they'll ruin yeah, it for absolutely. everybody.
7: Yeah, and most of the places I go to now, I'm, I have a pretty good contact with the local authorities. And if I call them ahead of time, say, hey, this is Larry Wilson. I'm going to be out here so-and-so uh, cemetery tonight. Just want to let you know they appreciate that. And they say that's fine. And actually, a lot of times, they'll come out and uh, patrol it for me to make sure there's no one out there that, that bothers me. You know? and, um, but at, at Anderson, we knew we had to leave. But... Uh, as we're, we're getting ready to leave, I'm still, you know, focusing on this temperature. My nose feels like it's frozen. My hands are freezing. I mean, there's cold breath coming out of my mouth. You can see the steam. And again, huh. it's 44, which is chilly, but it's not, you know, it's not freezing. Uh, but anyhow, um, when Ed and I left, it was still 11 degrees below zero. And then, you know, we got in a vehicle, and I had to turn the heat on to warm up my hands and my nose. And um, I talked to... Um, there's another investigator, um, I don't know him that well, but I met him one time at a film festival, it was, it's, it's Troy Taylor. Oh yeah, and, Troy. Yeah, and he had investigated the place years ago, and also a guy named Tim Hart, uh, I don't know if you guys know Tim, but Tim's also a well-respected investigator, and Tim was out there on this particular occasion, and I confirmed this with Tim also, but uh, they were out in July filming a TV show like in the late 90s, and I, it, the name of the show escapes me, but, uh, but anyhow, when they were out there, it was a summer afternoon in July, 98 degrees, and in that exact same spot, they got a, a temperature that read as, as cold as 13 above zero on a 98 degree day. Hmm. Um, so it, it was t- kind of some corroboration for me that, that you know kind of. Well, that's cool.
5: Me. When you get that type of a temperature drop, too, that's not just a fluctuation. I mean, that's definitely something going on.
7: Right, and I and I checked with the uh, you know Gary Hawkins uh, excuse me, Gary Hopkins on this, and uh, and I was asking Gary about the, the particular thermometers, and uh, he told me that. They kind of vary in the distance they'll actually pick up. He said, like, your laser will show maybe 100 yards from there. But he said they're basically made for the automotive industry. And he had contacted some of the manufacturers. And they said basically the range on those things are anywhere from maybe one to four feet. So wherever I was picking that temperature up was probably somewhere in that range from. Yeah, so it was, it
5: was a lot closer to you than you thought it was. <laughs> yeah, actually,
7: it was. You know, it uh, basically, though, it, it had to be right there. And, uh, I've been out there, you know, a lot of times, and you don't get something that happens every night, but you'll go out there in the daytime, and the first time I actually went out to the cemetery was in the, the, the uh, Sunday before I went out on that Wednesday when I, I was punched in the back. But I went out there on a Sunday afternoon, and you know, the, the place gave me just this peaceful feeling, but in the back of my mind, it made me, you know, it, it gave me a feeling that this place was trying to say that, you know, here's a nice sunny day. It's fine, but you come out here at night, I can show you what I can do, and, and you know, and it did, and it has. Uh, it's just, it's a very unusual place. But, well, the,
2: the times that I went down there, uh, I, I've been down there a couple of times, and it, to me, it seemed like a like a typical rural cemetery. Uh, I I didn't have anything as dramatic as that happened to me. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you... W- there's a controversy I don't that you're, you're probably aware of about what cemetery is the real Cemetery X, because of course, there's two Anderson cemeteries in the county. Isn't it Thomas right. Anderson? Is that it? Right. Yes. Yeah. Thomas Absolutely. Anderson is the one that I always thought was the Cemetery X. And you're um, correct. So Thomas, she, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, man. Oh well, I was just going to ask, how did you? determine that that was the one is it something that you read somewhere or that's your
5: pre-research mike that's how we do it
2: (laughs) actually how i actually found
7: out where you know graveyard x was there's a a website and it's you know it's been several years ago so i don't even know the name of the website anymore it may not even be functioning but it was a website to locate cemeteries and uh, i just happened to be you know reading the form on there and a person asked where Anderson Cemetery Graveyard X was, and a guy gave the uh, like the Google coordinates and uh, told where it was. Well, actually, I went out there, and it was the wrong Anderson. Basically, it's about five miles. It's also in Christian County, but it's about five miles from Thomas Anderson Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also, I had seen photos of uh, actually when that TV show that was filmed that Tim Hart and, and, and Troy Taylor was right. uh, involved with. But anyhow, I'd seen some photos of, of the, uh, the stones that are out there, the bench, that type of thing. And yeah. i have actually uh, confirmed it with some other uh, local investigators. And actually, the best people sometimes to confirm things with are the local kids, that uh, the high school kids that, that go out to these places. And actually, my, uh, my nephew uh, had been out there a few times, which I didn't realize. And uh, he had uh-huh. also confirmed that this was the correct cemetery. There used to be like a stone cabin just down the down the way from uh, Thomas yes. Anderson, which is no longer I tried right
5: to now. locate that cemetery about four or five years ago, and it was impossible back then. I did tons of research, and I finally found it because I matched a sign that was on the fence with something else. And I actually, it matched up, and I realized I found the right one finally.
2: Well, there, there's actually uh, a discrepancy in Troy Taylor's writing. In his book, Beyond the Grave, he actually names the cemetery he says this is Anderson Cemetery it only became graveyard X later on in subsequent books and so he has this um, story of the origin of the cemetery and I actually visited the um, genealogical society in Christian County and they had a book with all the cemeteries in it and the history of the cemeteries well the uh, origin story in Troy Taylor's book was the same as the one in this cemetery record book so I was able to sort of match the two up and then asked a local um, somebody was like walking on the side of the road and I asked him <laughs> where Anderson Cemetery was and he pointed me to Thomas Anderson Cemetery so that's yeah, how I, I was able to find it
7: and I'd always thought it was this it sounded like this There was this elusive cemetery that was top secret that right, right. accent and when I finally got the directions to it, as I get close to it, here's a sign that says Anderson Cemetery, and there's a big arrow pointing towards it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not like it's this big, uh, secret place. Well, back,
5: <laughs> back when I was trying to find it, Larry, it was. If you went to a forum that had something about it, you know, there would ten- be no locations. And if someone put a location, uh, they would delete the post. It was, I mean, it was just huge secret about four or five years ago.
7: And I know that uh, the board out there, the cemetery board, um, I think, from what I heard, and this this is just hearsay, when they did the TV show out there, one of the stipulations was that they wouldn't post where it was, because they were afraid that then a lot of you know um, interested folks would be coming out there and, and you know and trampling the, the graves and leaving litter and that type of thing. Right. So I think that's part of the reason it was labeled graveyard
2: X. It was just kind of the. So not everybody would be going out there. Uh,
5: I no, think it no, made no, it actually more interesting for me. It was a challenge. It was like treasure pack. hunting.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, well, that's the, that's the irony. I think by keeping it a secret, they attracted more attention to the place than it ever would have had. you
7: and you're absolutely right. They did. Um, now the bad thing is this past uh, spring they had some extreme vandalism out there. I mean, I'm talking lots and lots of graves that were oh, damaged. Oh, that's true. really unfortunate. So now it's more off limits than it used to be. I mean, you can go out there and stay till curfew. Um, I do fortunately I have a, a connection with the local police and they said you know it's what they're worried about is, is, is you know people tearing it up so they said when you do want to go out there let us know uh, we'll contact the county authorities saying this is what you're doing um, you're going to be out there a limited time and, and they're, they're pretty cool about that but they're just worried about the because they've, they've been hit pretty hard out there recently.
2: Yeah I, th- I think it's a lot of just sort of local kids who are bored and for some reason, they just want to go out and destroy something, which I, I can never really I've understand. I've never
5: understood that either. I mean, I've never in my life thought about going out to destroying graves.
2: Now, if I wasn't talking to you guys, here's something you're going to
7: think is completely strange. When the vandalism happened this year, um, Ed Osborne and I have been out there several times together. And one day I was glad that Ed spoke up and said what he did because I had thought of the same thing many times when I went out there. But I've been out there, I'm guessing, maybe 45, 50 times, you know, in the last couple of years... But every time I go back, I see something I didn't see before. It's almost like uh, there's a stone that wasn't there the last time I was there. And one day, uh, Ed's just out of the blue says, Larry, when you come to this place sometimes, do you get the strange feeling that it's different than it was before? <laughs>
5: it rearranges and, itself. <laughs>
7: yeah, and that's what it almost seems like. Well, there's actually one grave out there that has a huge stone that's probably at least 18 inches wide and about three and a half to four feet tall. Um, I've tried to budge this thing. You can't budge it. I mean, I don't know how much this weighs. I'm guessing, you know, 450, 500 pounds, probably. But anyhow, this stone has been turned, and there's no signs that it's been bumped by uh, tractors mowing the cemetery, but it's actually moved off the foundation, and I've noticed several of the stones out there have done the same thing. And Ed called me the night that the evangelism was reported, and he said, you know, this sounds strange, Larry, but you said the first thing I thought of This may have been not a bunch of kids out there because, um, I mean, there were so many stones that were damaged, and there wasn't a lot of evidence. He said, you know, Larry, what do you think about something that causes the ground to shift out there that may have caused a lot of these stones to topple over? And it made complete sense to me, but there could be some kind of natural movement of the ground out there that causes this. But I don't know how many times I've been out there, and places I've walked by just numerous times, and all of a sudden, there'll be a stone that I I didn't recall, and <laughs> you know I need to check my photos better.
1: And, and you I
5: picture. got photos everywhere I go, just incredible yeah. amounts. But you can always go back and look. But I know exactly what you mean. Seems like things move around some of these places.
1: Yeah,
7: absolutely. And uh, but it's, it's it's just adds to the strangeness. the only other thing that's really was pretty cool out there. I went out with the local ghost society one time, and it was like about six in the afternoon on a Saturday, and uh, they actually picked up some pretty good EVPs. But at one point, point, I I heard what sounded like a, a primate, like a gorilla, growling in my ear. And immediately I said, did you hear that? Well, luckily, there was somebody standing with me that had a tape recorder. And she says, well, I didn't hear it, but she says, let's run the tape back. Well, right before on the tape, when she runs it back, right before I say, did you hear that, it's just, everything goes bonkers with static. And it was like there was some kind of interference there. That's but I interesting. Heard it in, in, and several people heard it in different parts of the cemetery that night. But it's basically, it's like right on top of your ear. Um, but there was a, a couple of cool EVPs that night that, that other people, had, excuse me, had reported. Um, but that growling, I'll never forget that either. It was just, I heard it. I know I heard it. And she picked up that, that interference on her tape recorder at the time. So, you know, it could have been just my getting over my hearing but it was kind of cooperation that she picked up something that was abnormal at the same time
5: so is this what your book is about then basically it's like this it's all your different stories of the places you've been to
7: yeah it's uh it's basically it's a collection of uh of nine different places that i've been to in the last eight years uh, some of the other places are uh, the legacy theater in springfield it used to be called the, the uh, springfield theater center um, supposed to have the ghost of joe neville um, we went there this summer did an investigation And some of the best EVPs that I've ever recorded, I recorded in that theater center. And what was kind of funny was uh, there wasn't any physical experiences. It was just myself and one other investigator ourselves. And uh, nothing was going on. I mean, there was a thunderstorm outside earlier in the evening, which we thought, wow, this, you know, maybe should stir something up. The only thing we ran into was a bat in the place, so there was nothing going on. And I have to make the comment, you know, things have just died down. There's just nothing at all going on. And the other gentleman that was with me, he said, yeah, but, well, at least we saw a bat. It's a little of excitement. But when I get home and I play back my audio, going through my review, um, in between the time you hear me speak and the other investigators say that, well, at least we saw a bat, right in between you hear the voice of a male, and he says, that's your conclusion. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Oh, that's another, cool. Another point that night, uh, I had laid my uh, video camera down and a uh, tape recorder. And the reason I did that... We were down in the basement, and this place is huge. But down in the basement, there was a room, and there was a sump pump in it that was running. And I knew it was going to interfere with the audio downstairs, so uh, I was going to shut the door. So in order to do that, I had to uh, put my tape recorder and video camera down because we were still setting up equipment down there. And by, but my tape recorder was running, and I had to take an extension cord off the top of the door. So and the audio, you can hear me, you know, doing all this, shutting the door. Well, in the meantime, you know, the the sump pump shuts down, so you can, you know, it's pretty pretty quiet down there. But when I played my audio back um, after the the sump pump shuts off and you can hear the door shutting, um, and this may have to be edited out, but you hear a voice that says, uh, "You left," and I'll say "crap" instead of what you know it was said, but you left crap there. <laughs> and uh, it was a, it was a whisper, it was a loud whisper that was right in between it. And you know, I agree with you. Yeah, I did. I left my I left my crap there. You know, and um, but it's it's a fantastic place, and a lot of the uh, people that. Uh, that work there in the in the theater business, they uh they've reopened it recently this summer. Um the owner told me a story that the first night that they open back up and actually the ghost of Joe Neville is supposed to more or less show himself on, on the, the night of a new performance, the first night of the new performance. But the guy that was doing the lights upstairs, um, all of the uh the lights to the stairwell that leads up to the the little room that they, they run all the electrical equipment from the lighting and that type of thing they turned the lights off there so it doesn't you know cause any background lighting on the stage and he said he heard somebody coming up the steps so he shined his flashlight so they these people could see where they were going and he said when i shined the light the steps stopped or the footsteps stopped and there was nobody there you know and, um so it's, it's starting to kick up again since they reopened the
5: okay larry do you have any place that was like uh you could feel it the second you walked in the door
7: um Well, actually, the uh, Villisca House in Villisca, Iowa, the Axe Murder House, I mean, it's one of those places where um, you can just feel the tension when you walk in.
5: I'm very familiar with it.
7: Oh, absolutely. Um, One thing that's kind of puzzling was the first time I went there, I didn't really have, you know, didn't get a feeling about the house, didn't record any EVPs. Um, The whole, you know, the uh, history of the house was pretty exciting, just knowing you're in a house where, that type of history took place and there's a possibility of you know, something being there but the second time um i had actually had set up a, uh, a documentary with a guy named paul robinson well, paul is an independent producer of films and he's out of kansas city missouri and uh... i had worked with him on a couple of films and i mentioned to him about the ballista house and he uh, contacted darwin land the owner and. Uh, as we all probably know, that, or, or you know, I'm sure.
5: Darwin was a great guy, too. Absolutely.
7: He had passed away this, this past summer. But uh, but uh, Paul had talked to Darwin about doing a documentary. Darwin was all for it. Um, he let us use the house for two days, uh, you know, no charge. Um, but this was in September 2008, uh, September 8th and September 9th of 2008. But uh, the day we arrived, um, we met Darwin there, and it was Paul and an, an actress model from Kansas City named Sharon Wright who was going to do the voiceover for the for the documentary? And when we got there, it was decided that Paul and Sharon would shoot some of the voiceover outside. Uh, Darwin was just there, kind of watching what was going on. And, and I had mentioned, well, if you guys are going to be shooting out here, I might as well go inside and uh, start setting up some audio and see if I can, you know, record any EVPs and just actually just uh, get set up for for later on in the night. But anyhow, uh, I went on in. I headed upstairs to uh, what was the uh, what is the where the children. Uh, had lived and, and where their room was and where they had uh, unfortunately met their demise. But uh, I was setting up a tape recorder in there, and I always announce the date, the, the location, the room I'm in, that type of thing, when I turn on a tape recorder. And I was in the process of doing that when I heard footsteps downstairs. And uh, you know, I'm thinking, well, it's probably Darwin that uh, just you know come inside see what was going on. And uh, I, uh, I yelled downstairs, Hey, uh, hey, Darwin, is that you? And didn't get any response so i walked across the upstairs to the other side where the, the, the more parents uh, where their bedroom was mm-hmm. and checked outside and looked and I, I see darwin actually darwin's getting in his truck he's getting ready to back out to leave and of course there's paul and sharon outside they're still recording some of the voice, voiceovers so I, uh, I I walked downstairs and checked of course there was nobody there um, so i knew i'm in the house alone but i definitely heard footsteps But i didn't know until later when uh, a few days after that when i started reviewing audio when I played that portion of the audio back um, I had recorded growling and what was unusual about the growling was hmm. it was growling in syllables so it oh, was really? words being said but it was a growl and at the time I was using just an a, a, a audio programming Audacity just to edit some of the audio and the background right. type of thing so I, I put it in Audacity and I, um, I basically took some of the background noise out slowed it down, slowed the tempo down got it to the point absolutely I could hear what was being said what's being said the first thing you hear on this clip is uh, a a voice that sounds like it could be a child's voice and it's saying help me Hmm. and just following that is another help me but it's a different voice and it kinda sounds like it's mocking the first help me so it's like you know you hear help me and then like help me
5: you know oh yeah yeah I know what you mean
7: (laughs) immediately after that clear as a bell you hear Satan wins Now. When you first hear something like that, it kind of shocks you, you know, because you're not expecting that. Um, I talked to a a spiritualist, or she's a a psychic clairvoyant, but uh, um, she basically was trying to explain that she believes that the reason, you know, those types of things are said. She said, I I don't necessarily believe that that's a demonic voice, but she says spirits and negative spirits, especially, they don't want to be exposed and she says she believe they're trying to scare you out of the house because they know you're running audio equipment, you know, and, and if you catch them on tape, you know, of course, uh, you know, there's a good chance that, that people know, hey, there's something there, but to me, you know, I, I'm not quite sure I follow that theory because to me, if I catch something on tape, that's going to invite more people in that want to try to catch things on tape. Yeah. But, but anyhow, she said, I, you know, I don't know if I would fear that, but she said, uh, you know, she said, it. don't take it as demonic, but I don't know how else you take something like that. It's basically something you normally don't. And that's the only place I've ever been.
5: There's an evil presence in that house, though. There's just no doubt about it.
7: Absolutely. And I mean, after we filmed this documentary, we were there for the two days. One night, two days. We decided we didn't need to stay the second night because we had all the the footage we needed. But that that first night we were there, um, we we came back to the house that night to shoot some of the night. We'd already set up our equipment. We're in there. We get there about 10 o'clock at night and Sharon had never ever been on a, an investigation, haunted location, anything like that so she was very very gun shy the whole time well Paul was outside doing some things with his equipment and Sharon and I went inside and when you come into the parlor of the house on the far side of the room there's a, a door that leads out to the front porch of the house and. On the other side of that door, on the wall, was a picture of uh, the family and a couple of the children.
5: That's a creepy picture, too. <laughs>
7: it is. It, it's like again, it's just like the old movies you see. It's like the eyes follow you, you know, throughout the house, everywhere you go, they follow you. But right. <laughs> so we're walking over to see this picture. I'm leading the way, and Sharon's behind me again. She's like right on my heels because she just doesn't like it there. And as I walk by the door, it's like somebody took their foot and tried to kick the door open. I mean, it's just boom. It just vibrates. And it scared both of us, it just shook us up, you know, and I look at the door, and I look back at Sharon, and she's like, you know, she yells out, of course, and uh, couldn't explain it, so I, I grabbed the doorknob, and I shook it, just to see if I could recreate that, that, you know, that vibration, right. and I couldn't, I mean, the, the door was locked, and I kind of stomped on the floor, see if I could cause the door to, to vibrate, couldn't do that either, so then I went outside to see if somebody was outside playing around, well there's a screen door on the outside also so there's an inside door that was locked and there was a screen door on the outside and when I went out to the outside to check that door out the door's padlocked so I mean it was not like somebody opened the door and kicked it or anything the door's locked on the outside so there's two doors that are locked but couldn't recreate that uh, but and I've been back there two times since and that's never happened again and I've walked by that door many a times you know checking that picture out and you don't get that same effect. Well, there's,
5: no. there's something in there, no doubt. How about uh, upstairs in the kids room, Larry, you know, where the ball rolls and the door closes okay. by itself. Do you get that stuff?
7: Well, the door closing by itself, I've had the door close you know, numerous times, but uh, have you ever been in the closet up there and, and kind of checked the closet out, shut the door?
5: Yeah, I actually brought a level up there and some equipment to check on the...
7: Okay, yeah. Well, what I did uh, was I went in the closet and, and actually, if you look up when you're in the closet, There's a section of which I guess it's not really the attic; it's it's above the closet because the attic is on the same level as the second floor, basically. But above the uh, above the uh, closet, there's a section that's cut out, and Darwin had put plastic over it. And as that plastic breathes, the door will open and close. So it's kind of an air current that causes that door to open and close. But I've heard other people talk about the door to the attic opening and closing, and so far I. Can't find any reason why that door would open and close on its own. I've never seen it open and close.
5: When the kids' closet up there, we actually had the door open by about three foot, so the wind wouldn't affect that. We had cameras on it, and we caught that door closing twice.
7: Just on its own.
5: And uh, yeah. like I say, I put a level on it, and the door is uneven with that old house. But it's actually uneven the opposite direction. If anything, the door should be opening, not closing.
7: Right. Well, and you talk about evil. Um, after we filmed the documentary that year, and in a minute I'll tell you something happened the next year when I went there that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen anywhere, and it happened in that house. But, uh, but after we filmed the documentary, um, of course, we all go our separate ways. Uh, Paul lives in Kansas City. Sharon lives near Kansas City. I live in central Illinois, so we're, I'm about you know um, six hours from those guys. So I get home, and I start going through my, my audio and video. I um, didn't catch anything on audio, or video, rather, but I had, I had tons of things on audio. And one of the things that I caught was a, a voice that says, and it sounds like an old Boris Karloff movie, you know, the old Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, you hear this voice, and it says, come here, but it sings it. It basically it's like, come here. Mm. And then as soon as you hear the come here, I hear my name whispered. It's Larry. It just whispers, Larry. And immediately following that, following that, you hear a male voice that says, "Tie her," and just about a second or two after that, you hear another voice that kind of says, matter-of-factly, "I'll kill her." So you hear, "Come here," "My name," whispered, "Tie her," and "I'll kill her." That's just the beginning of what started happening. As I'm reviewing evidence, I this is over a course of several days. I started getting depression, and I've never been depressed in my life. I was depressed, um, and then it started expanding from depression. We started having all types of mechanical things around our house breaking down. We had a refrigerator breakdown, lost all of our food in it, had vehicles that uh, batteries were going dead, uh, perfectly good batteries, newer batteries, uh, then that we would take and have them checked, there nothing wrong with them. Uh, had major appliances break down. I went to visit some friends. The day I was there and left, their dishwasher broke down, their telephone stopped working, their computer went offline, um, their dryer stopped working. Um, just things like this just continued going on. Well I work uh, in a state office building and the next thing you know I started noticing and this is like over the course of a couple weeks time I started noticing how um, just people would come up just to have general conversation and then maybe a third party would walk up not once or twice but every single time that would happen these whoever the people were, they would start arguing before they left. It was just like four words just, you know, I do little unimportant things. Huh. But this, it was all the time. So it was like this extreme negativity. A
5: negative thing right around you. <laughs>
7: Absolutely. Well, then it, it starts to uh, to evolve to, to be more extreme. Um, I'm sitting in my cubicle one day at work. I have a lady that works right behind me. And I didn't realize that she was at her desk. But anyhow, I'm sitting down. All of a sudden, I feel a breeze go by me like somebody walked by. And immediately I smelled a stench of what smelled like hog manure. And now our it's a state office building. Now our our building is sealed. The windows don't open. They just they're sealed windows. You can't open them or them. And I immediately turned around to ask the lady that, well, to see if the lady had walked by, you know, and, and asked her if she smelled anything. But when I turned around, she was already seated at her desk, had some headphones on, was working away, so she'd already been seated there all the time, so she didn't pass me. Um, it continued on, I mean, uh, just the negativity. Well, then the next thing you know, um, my wife started experiencing things around the house, too. And my wife, um, she believes this stuff, you know, is possible. But our big standing joke is, you know, you can go anywhere you want to go. Just don't bring anything home with
5: you. So well, you brought something back with you from there, huh?
7: <laughs> absolutely, because here's what happened. I was starting to hear, um, like, someone say my name. And I would say, you know, what do you need or or what you say? And my wife or my son, I have just one son, just the two of us live here, and they said, we didn't say anything, and I was clearly hearing voices. Next thing you know, I started seeing shadow, like, <laughs> shadows of people around the house. Well, you know, you start to question your sanity after a while. You know, am, am I am I depressed because there's something going wrong, um, or is there something paranormal going on? Well, what sensed it for me, knowing something was going on, my wife came to me and she said, you know, Larry, what did you bring home with you? And I said why do you mean or what do you mean why are you saying that she was seeing the shadows also she was hearing people call her name uh, and this was about two weeks after I got back um, and then it escalates from there uh, one night I'm driving in my car and it's late at night I'm driving home I look in the rearview mirror to check traffic and you know my mirror was adjusted a little bit more towards me and I could see my face perfectly well I could see me Larry Wilson in the mirror but also I could see features of a face that wasn't mine now, again, there you start questioning your own sanity. <laughs> now,
5: that, that is creepy. <laughs> it,
7: it's, it's very creepy. And again, I didn't, I didn't tell my wife until later on about that. But a few days later or the next week, uh, we both use the same, you know, hairdresser. I have my hair cut. My wife has a hairstyle, of course. And this lady that, that we see, um, she's had paranormal experiences as a child. And she always asks me when I come in, like, where have I been? That kind of thing. And we always chat about this stuff. Well, we go in to, to have our, our hair taken care of and she's talking to me and she kind of excused herself and she walked over um, to uh, Kathy and she says you know, and I didn't know this conversation was going on but she says Kathy um, what's going on with Larry and Kathy said well what do you mean she says well I was talking to Larry and she says for one thing his personality is not the same but she said I'm looking at him and she said his face started to change from flesh color to gray and then the next thing I know she says I'm looking at Larry, but it's not Larry, you know, and she had told Kathy that, and of course, as we we're driving home, Kathy told me the same thing, and boom, immediately it clicks. Yeah, she is seeing something, because I saw it in, in the mirror. Um, there's a, a girl I know that has a daughter who is gifted. She's uh, is empathic, and she picks up feelings of people, and the daughter came in to work one day just to visit with the mom. And after the daughter leaves, the mom tells me that, uh, um, you know, Larry, uh, I, I didn't tell you this before you left but my daughter said she had a dream about you and in the dream that she had she said you went to this location and she said there was extremely dark figures around you but she said when she came in here today to have you know to meet me and have lunch or whatever um she said that she got sick when she walked by she actually got physically sick to her stomach uh the same two were invited i had a 50th birthday party a few weeks after that and the same two were invited to the birthday party and uh when the girl came, you know, she she sat down by me and she was going to have something to eat, and I noticed that she didn't eat. And the mother told me Monday at work, she says, you know, um, my daughter, she said that there's something bad around you. She said she got sick again around you, you know, and um, so you know, then you start thinking, hey, there's really
5: something going on here. Yeah, too well, many coincidences there.
7: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, I went out to a local bookstore, and it, I felt kind of like you see the movies where where uh, somebody's been attacked by a, a werewolf or a vampire. <laughs> the local library, and they research vampires and werewolves. Right. How do you stop this? You know, Well, I went to the local bookstore, and I found a book. I, I don't recall the lady's name. I'm sorry. But have you ever seen the TV show The Ghost Whisperer? Well, this lady had written a book, and as I'm thumbing through the book, one of the chapters was on spirit attachment. And in this chapter, she had a uh, checklist, and the checklist had 20 different things that could be a sign of spirit attachment. I went through the checklist, 18 of the 20 things I could check off. So <laughs> I definitely knew you know, there was something going on.
5: <laughs> yeah, that's so, not a good sign. <laughs> absolutely
7: not. Um, so what I ended up doing, um, this clairvoyant lady that I know, I contacted her, and I left a voicemail message for her. And I'm telling you, this is how good this lady is. I left a voicemail message for her. Only thing I said was, uh, her name is Cheryl. And I said, Cheryl, I have something I want to talk to you about. And I gave her my, my home phone number. And she already had my work phone number, so I didn't get a call back that night. The next day I go into work. It's about 8 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings, and it's Cheryl. And before I can even barely say hello, Cheryl says, Larry, where have you been? Have you been to a house, or have you been to a cemetery? And see, she didn't even know what I was calling about.
5: Right, but she just knew it.
7: She just knew it. And I said, well, actually, Cheryl, you're right on both accounts. I said, I've been to a house but before we went to the house see that when we were filming Darwin took us to the cemetery and we filmed some shots of the uh, the victims and uh, some of the people that were you know close to
5: the uh, the murder yeah he took us out there too
7: and so anyhow I'd been to the cemetery and I'd also been to uh, the house and the next thing she says was she said there were people murdered in that house weren't there and I said absolutely I didn't have to go any farther and she she's never heard of this Villisca house I later found that out hmm. but she, she started thinking and she says well let me see she said there was a family that was killed, and she said, I'm seeing two other people. And then she basically says, There were eight people that were killed. And that's exactly the number of people that were murdered in the Valeska house. Right. But well, then she proceeds to tell me, She said, Larry, three lower negative um, spirits or entities have attached themselves to your body. And I said, You know, well, Cheryl, what do you mean by lower negative? And she says, Well, I call them opposites of angels. And I said, Are you saying they're demonic? And she says, Well, and this is Cheryl, and she's real spiritual. She says, I don't give them that type of credit. I said, She said, I call them lower negative. I won't call them demons. But to me, when you're calling something opposites of angels, you're talking about something that's it's right. not, not good anyway. The, 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 at the least, it's, it's something bad. Um, she said, you know, you need a cleansing. And she said, this was on a, a Friday. And she said, you need to come in tomorrow. And she said, normally cleansing, it would take, you know, she she said it should take about half hour, 40 minutes to get a cleansing. That's just what she was telling me. So I go there the next day. When I get there, she can't find the materials that she normally uses to do cleansing and it's just her and her husband that lives there and she said you know larry this is extremely odd she says my husband doesn't bother my equipment and she said it's not here well basically john it took her a half hour to find her equipment she finally found it and she did several types of different things prayers and she did some uh native drummings and prayers and some tibet she used a tibetan singing bowl it's like a a metal bowl that uh, that she would tap on, it sends out this high-pitched vibration that she explained that uh, negative things, or lower negative energies, they don't like that high-pitched sounds, and that helps drive these negative things out of a person's body and she was also doing the drumming, like a Native American prayer, she was saying, and she had like a tom-tom and she was doing this drumming over me, and as she was doing that, tears started rolling out of my eyes kind of just running down my cheeks, and I'm thinking, huh. this is extremely weird well, when she was finished with that part of it i just said hey you know Cheryl, what was going on there i said i had tears running down my cheek she said larry you picked up emotions of some of the things that are in that house and uh, basically it took her two and a half hours to do this cleansing now of course this lady charges the fee for everything but she charges basically like a flat forty dollars for a half hour forty minutes she didn't charge me anymore to to get in an extra almost two hours you know so it wasn't like she was trying to gouge me to get more money out of me. It. Right. it just took her two and a half hours to do this cleansing. And basically, that wasn't the end of it. I mean, it, over the course of the next month, probably, things slowly got back to normal. Um, but uh, it's it was one of those things. It was the worst probably three months of my life. I was just extremely depressed. I mean, everybody's arguing around me. All kinds of equipment's breaking down
5: around me. That, uh, that's downright crazy. creepy, no doubt about it. That's every investigator's nightmare.
7: And you know it changed the way that I investigate. Um, right after that, that that group I told you I was a member of earlier, I think in the conversation that's in right. Springfield. Um, the next meeting I went to, I explained what happened, and you know basically they listened to me for two hours because I was telling these people. I said you know basically I know you like to read the stories, you watch the TV shows, and when they would go out, it was more or less just they went out to uh, have a fun evening, you know, and I explained. Hey, there's more to this than just going out and having a fun evening. If you're serious about this, you need to take precautions as well as I do, and take this stuff serious. There's something real, and I mean the Veliska House, fortunately, is the only place I've ever had any trouble with uh, out of probably more than some 200 some investigations I've done.
5: Well, that pl- house. that house out of any other house, over. I mean, look what happened there. My gosh, that Absolutely. you know, that's just pure evil.
7: Absolutely. Uh, And when I was talking to Cheryl the clairvoyant, I was asking her, you know, do you know what is in this house? And I said, or is it the spirits of the killers? The spirits of the victims? She said, oh, she said I believe. And through her, she can do like a kind of a a remote viewing. And uh, she said, you know, I believe that there, there occasionally are some of the spirits of the victims in the house. She said, I don't think it's the spirits of the uh, the killers that caused your problem. She was picking up on something that she said had been there actually even before the Native Americans. And she said, Larry, what you're dealing with in that house is something that never walked the face of the earth as a human being. And it, it basically stays in that house, and it picks on people, comes in. It picks and chooses who it wants to torment. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny Hauser. Johnny is the uh, character. I know who he is. Johnny lives right next door. And we did an investigation there last October, October the 10th of 2010. Uh, Johnny came to the locker place for us and of course he lives next door but I was explaining some of the things that happened to me in 2008 that I just explained to, to you and uh, I would start a sentence and Johnny would finish it because the exact things, uh, same things happened to Johnny and uh, if you look at Johnny Johnny's uh, probably mid-30s but the day I talked to him he had dark circles around his eyes he looked like he had just been through it and he said you know the house is getting the best of him he tries to stay out of it as much as he can but he
5: lives right next door now Absolutely. or next door to it <laughs>
7: next door to it and they have uh, they have things going on in their house now they hear footsteps uh upstairs they were they have a, a young child now it was a baby at the time i talked to him it was probably, well i guess you're still considered a baby but the child would be upstairs and they had a, a crib upstairs for the child all of a sudden they would hear the child start you know crying and they'd go upstairs and check and the railing on the crib we pushed down and, and they would say that there's no way that the baby could push it down it locked in place they would put it back up and they'd go back up and it would be down in a few minutes you know And but they were hearing footsteps and but johnny said just the whole thing's negative and uh... he realizes that but but it was reassurance for me that you know this stuff really happened you know to me and it's it's something i don't want to go through again but i i sort of had the same a similar experience last year not to this degree but last year when we were in the house um we had a a lady named Janet uh, uh, Morris with us and Janet is a local uh, investigator but she also has empathic abilities and we were up on the second floor in the children's bedroom all of a sudden she started getting sick to her stomach and we had a what what we call a wand thermometer basically you can just touch it on anything it'll give you the exact temperature and we had a couple of temperature fluctuations during the evening we started out basically the temperature was around 70-71 degrees and once it jumped up to 73 so we, we don't taunt. I don't taunt. I think that's risky, and I think the one thing, it's, uh, you know, it's inconsiderate, and it's kind of disrespectful. Right. But but anyhow, I started um, saying, well, you know, if you're this powerful, and I know what you can do, but if you're so powerful, we want to see you make this temperature rise on this thermometer. Um, nothing really happened in the very beginning. And then Chris, another investigator who was with us, uh, was setting on... The far bed in that room I was sitting on the bed that you can see down the hallway and there's a crib to the right and another bed to the left Chris was sitting on the bed to the left and all of a sudden he came over and he sat next to us and he said something doesn't feel right over there he said there's something bad over there and then immediately um, Janet got sicker and uh, I said one more time if you're as powerful as you know everybody says you are let's see you make this temperature right temperature jumped from 72 to I think it was 89 degrees 88 or 89 degrees Within seconds, and huh. Janet had to get out of the house. As a matter of fact, at that point, that was about 1:30 in the morning. Janet uh, uh, left the house and she would not return that night. Uh, but I got some uh, some good audio again that night. I got I got an orb that's on my Facebook page, but I'm not big on orbs.
5: Me neither, at <laughs> all. No,
7: no, and I, I'm not normally. But after this happened, uh, I told Chris to take Janet outside because she was getting sick. And I stayed upstairs and one of the cameras I had upstairs had like the mini DVD disc and so I had to change the disc. So I changed the disc and I went downstairs after that and Chris and Janet are outside and because of my experience I had in 2008, I said, okay, you know who I am, you know I'm here, show me you're here. Immediately upstairs I hear boom, boom, boom. It was like three just steps that went right across the upstairs. Okay, you know, that, that that was fairly cool and that's all that happened at that time. So anyhow, um, I go outside. Well, actually, Chris comes back in, and says, "Larry, you know, you don't look right. You need to get out of here." So I went back outside, and I pointed my camera upstairs at the uh, parents' bedroom, and took a couple shots. and one of the shots is an orb that's basically the size of the bottom of the window, and it's it's like a cream, creamy, almost like a like a dirty wool color. And anyhow, um, I took it home, put it on my computer, and what I noticed in the shot that I had taken earlier in the evening. That particular window, uh, from when they painted the eaves, has a drip of paint on it. When I, you know, uh, enlarged the photo, I could see that I could see the drip of paint basically on the outside of the window, which to me meant that that orb was behind the window. It oh. was in front of my camera. There was nothing between my camera and that drip of paint because I could see the paint on the outside of the window. So that orb was on the inside of the window. The Velisca
5: house is the only house or location I've ever got an orb picture that I believe is actually something paranormal. It's the only place.
7: And and it's basically about the same way with me. I've been so many places, but most of the things you can rule out as being something in between the camera lens and and whatever. Well, if you
5: see the differential ring, that ring around the outer edge, it shows you that it's environmental. But I actually got one on the kid's closet door that is emitting its own light. You know, it's it's nothing like those
7: no yeah it's not uh, you can't explain it and uh, but uh, what happened after that was you know we go home of course we're six hours away and the next day um, it's about three in the afternoon when I got home my wife's gone my son's gone and I, I get on my computer check email and I'm sitting here checking email in the corner of the room there's a hissing sound it's loud it sounds like a snake hissing in the corner so I went over checked it out thinking maybe it's some kind of a bug hissing bug but I don't even know if we have those in Illinois And I checked it out. There's nothing there. So I sat back down. No sooner had I sat back down to my right. We have a a cabinet that has a a TV and some things in it. And it sounded like there was a rat or something there scratching away. Um, You know, I checked that out. There's nothing there, of course. And I knew uh, my wife, Kathy, wasn't home. So after that happens, in our back bedroom, I heard somebody moving around. I thought, well, maybe Kathy is home. I went and checked it out. Kathy's not there. Come back and sit down one final time. And as I sat back down... Down our hallway, you hear boom, 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 and immediately through my mind, I didn't hear this out loud, but immediately through my mind, I heard this voice that said, you don't have to come to me, I can come to you, but it was the exact same oh. boom, boom, boom that I had heard that night before in the up, upstairs when I was in the hospital so, And I mean, you talk about being unnerved. Um, you watch some of these shows on TV, like the old haunting show, and they'll be something happens in the house and there's nobody there you know and that's exactly how I felt this this was in my house now you know and it's it's not a good feeling um, I still have 17 hours worth of audio to review from last October and I've stopped reviewing it because every time I start reviewing it it's the only place where this happens uh, I've you know I review tons of audio but every time I start reviewing the ballista audio I'm constantly turning around because there's somebody standing behind me I think it's maybe my wife walked in the room but she's not there um And then also then negative things will start happening. We spent over $5,000 on repair on mechanical things last fall when I came home My wife doesn't want me to go back just for the fact it's too expensive to go back we, Every yeah. time I go there things break down, you know, it's just unreal, but I'm hesitant to to um, You know to review that audio
1: evidence
5: actually Velisca's is the only place where I've never I've got all my videotapes and audio tapes and I've never gone completely through them either Which is something I've never done, but for some reason I'm just not going through them.
7: <laughs> yeah, it's, if there's something about that. It, it's There's something not right. What I was going to tell you was about what I saw in 2009. Myself and one other investigator went. Uh, it was May the 12th, 2009. We got there uh, about 7 o'clock in the evening. We didn't really start investigating until about you know, 10 o'clock. We'd set our equipment up. And it was a cool night. It was in the 60s. It had been raining. And uh, the guy that was with me had a uh, hoodie on. And he said, you know, Larry, he said, I'm tired from the drive. so I'm just going to lay down on the floor here and stretch out. And he pulled his hood up over his head, you know, and he said, I'm just going to lay here and and listen. If we hear anything, we'll go investigate. I thought, you know, that's that's cool, because it's early in the evening. Well, Jamie, lays, his name's Jamie, he lays down. And just kind of out of the blue, he kind of turns and looks at me and says, you know, I bet I look completely stupid laying here on this floor with his hood pulled up over my head (laughs) and my face. Well, as soon as he said that, um... What's called the blue room downstairs is with where the uh, Stillinger girls were killed, Lena and Ina Right. They were murdered down in the in the in the uh, first floor level in the in the room. They call it the blue room, basically because it's painted uh, painted blue. But anyhow, as soon as Jamie said that, he kind of chuckled. Coming out of the blue room, we heard what sounded like a couple kids, and they were just giggling away. Huh. And he he raised up on the floor and turned to looked at me. He raised up like a vampire, racing up out of the coffin. <laughs> and I said I said, did you hear that? And he said, yeah, I heard that. But there were, it was like children's voices coming from that room just giggling away. Well, later that night, um, we'd always been told that at 2 o'clock in the morning, the train would go through town, and it triggers like this fog that comes upstairs.
5: Yeah, we heard that, too. Yeah,
7: so we had, uh, and Darwin one time told me, he said, you know, it's not just 2 o'clock the train comes through town. He said, Larry, there's only 8 trains that either come through, or either pull out of town or come through town during the day. So he said there's pretty much a train that goes through about every hour on the hour and at night it does get pretty hectic, hectic on that track but anyhow two o'clock train whistle blows we've got all of our stuff set up we've got uh, monitor set up so if anything packed electronically it should set them off and we're monitoring that and it, half hour goes by nothing happened so again jamie was again tired from the drive and it's going on three o'clock in the morning and we're i'm sitting in the uh, children's room upstairs on the bed that you can see down the hallway i'm monitoring an emf detector and our monitors we had on the floor, if anything was fine, I should see it, you know, or hear it. Jamie laid down to my left on the uh, children's bed that's over in the left side of the room, and he said, I'm just going to shut my eyes for a few minutes, maybe take a little nap. I said, that's fine, I'll monitor this, anything goes on, I'll let you know. Exactly three o'clock in the morning, Jamie's goes off, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking, somebody's in the house, because up the staircase, comes a it's a neon best described as a neon green light it was kind of like the color of neon green and a mixture of like if you're looking through night vision goggles Mm -hmm. that that, that dim green almost like an infrared when you're looking through infrared at night but it was a bright green and I thought somebody was in the house with a lantern coming up the stairs but as you know John if you've you've been in that house any step you take in that house the floor pre exists.
5: especially that that stairway
7: (laughs) absolutely so this lights coming up the stairs and there's no, there's no noise. It's silent. And basically, uh, what happens was there's, there's no source of light. It's just light. And, but it's, it's a bright neon green. And as it comes up the stairs, unlike if somebody's like carrying a lantern out as they move forward, the light goes with mm-hmm. them. This light goes up the stairs and every place that this light has stays illuminated. It comes up the stairs. So the whole staircase that I can see, at least from that room, is lit and then instead of lighting up the wall at the top of the landing of the staircase the ceiling lights up green and it comes down so the staircase is lit up the, the ceiling uh, above the landing of the staircase is lit up then it comes down the wall and kind of meets the light that's coming up the stairs and it's this green light It's moving towards the, uh, the, uh, the the parents bedroom the light goes into the bedroom and I lose the front of the light but I can see just that, that part of the room is glowing then the light comes out of the room it's coming down the hallway towards me and it gets about to where the attic door is, which is about halfway down the hallway, and at that point that's when I yell for Jamie to wake up man, you gotta see this, and by the time Jamie jumped to his feet and came over to where I was, boom, the light's gone it just vanishes, just as quick as it started but I mean, so that went on for at least 15 seconds, it lit up the staircase up the, you know, to the landing, down the ceiling, down the wall back into the Moore's bedroom and uh, you know months after that's all I could think about what the heck was that and, you know, uh, I don't, it,
5: there's it, a lot I, of strange things that happen in that house we got more EVPs and more unexplained things that uh, out of anywhere else
7: yeah I I, uh, I captured an EVP uh, and I had to take the background noise out because it was saying something else I couldn't hear when I did it was a whisper and it said uh, um, run Sarah well of course as you know Sarah Moore was Joe Moore's wife right and and of course the 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 theory is that Joe was killed first. So if Joe's killed first, he's not yelling "Run, Sarah." So, you know, was that a thought that, that went through his subconscious at the time, or, or maybe maybe he wasn't killed first? I don't know.
5: You know, kind of looking at that house, you've been there too. Isn't it hard to imagine that many people could have been killed? I mean, that yeah. the parents' room and the kid's room are almost the same room.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely.
7: Um, some of the stories I've read, there's I, I, there was a couple books, uh, a couple good books written. I can't remember the actual. Uh, name of the the book was written by a fellow named Anderson and one of the uh, things that he talked about was they found a bottle when they were doing the investigation they found a bottle back in 1912 under the bed that they believed may have had chloroform in
5: it so that would be about the only way
7: (laughs) yeah as you know even a fairly new house back then that house it creaks I mean it just it does and I can't see how somebody got out of the attic or out of the basement got by the stillinger girls downstairs without them getting away uh, coming upstairs, this, the whole thing is just, it's almost like, even back then, um, something paranormal or something evil might have had. A hand. In that little
5: attic space where they claim that the person was waiting, you know, I went in there, that's a tiny little thing, too.
7: Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing, I usually don't spend a whole lot of time in the attic because it's so cramped and it's uncomfortable to sit in there, but we always put audio in there, and every time I've had audio in there, except for the first time, you could hear somebody, like, breathing and nervous whistling up there. Uh-huh. Like it's like that, how you whistle under your breath type of a whistle, and I've recorded that. I've got just minutes and minutes of that up there. Uh, it's, well, it's, it's almost like somebody's waiting for something. In
5: the attic, kind of a funny side note, we went in there, myself and my friend Matt were there. We went into the attic, and we could hear the girls that were with us coming upstairs, and Darwin is explaining some things. We went in the little attic room and closed the door, and we we're going to open the door, you know, give them a heart attack. Right. As soon as we went in the attic, the door locked. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, Within a matter of, you know, 30 seconds, panic was setting in, so the trick backfired. But the darn door, or as soon as we went in, it locked on us.
7: <laughs> and the door shouldn't lock. That door shouldn't lock. I mean, no, it,
5: it was definitely locked. <laughs> yeah.
7: Well, Darwin told me a story, too, that happened in the uh, in the closet in the children's room. He said there was a guy there, and I think, I think the guy actually brought his family, and they were doing an overnight. Uh, but the guy went upstairs, he was kind of just looking around. He went in the closet and shut the door. And as you know, that door doesn't have a lock on it. And right. basically, it, it, it's hard for it to stay shut. But the guy couldn't get out of the closet, Darlin said. And he said the guy is yelling at his family for somebody to come up there and get him out. And nobody heard him. And as you know, you can just have a general conversation in that house, and you can hear it all over the house. Yeah, it's but, but, but nobody heard the guy.
5: I tell you, getting locked in that attic for just a matter of a few minutes, you wouldn't believe how scared you get all of a sudden. Yeah,
7: it's uh, it gives you that. just It's a... Uh, what do I want to say? It's, just, it's uncomfortable. It's kind of.
5: Well, I told my buddy, I go, we're locked in. He yeah. goes, haha. Ha. I go, "I go, dude, we're locked in. <laughs> I'm like, we are really locked in here. <laughs> you
7: know, and Darwin didn't, re- I mean, he would tell you some of the stories that other people had. But I'd ask him several times, you know, Darwin, what kind of thing? And I said, things have to happen to you here, too. And he would always just say, I could tell you some stories, and you knew there was something he wanted to tell you, but he wasn't going to tell you for some reason, he just didn't want to tell you. Yeah,
5: he uh-huh. actually t- talked to me quite a bit, I was there like three hours before my group, and yeah. him and I just sat and talked, it was like talking with my grandfather or something, right. the nicest exactly. man.
7: Oh, absolutely, and the, the, the two nights that he let us have the place, uh, I mean, Darwin even took us, to, he, he took him and his wife, uh, took us to dinner. Uh, paid for everything and he would not take any money for anything and he was just that generous of a guy and he gets he got a bad rap too a lot of people around town were saying he he built this place or he refurbished this place so he could make money on the haunted side but that's not at all what he did he thought people would come because of the actual murder he thought they would be more interested in the murder mystery that went on in. And it was the history of the town, but uh, he did a lot with that town that they just, at this point, still don't understand. Oh, well, that
5: did. town is non-existent besides that. Man, it. Man, have you noticed the way the town folks look at you when you're in that oh, place?
7: Absolutely. It's like you're in the Twilight Zone. They don't they don't want you there. Anymore.
5: I went to that little gas station on the way out, like the only one in town, and I went to get a cup of coffee. And a, a guy walked up ahead of me, grabbed the last cup, pours it, and he goes, huh. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, gee, yeah, I'm like, it's like you're not welcome there. No, it welcome. was kind of oh, creepy. Notice.
7: I think they know too when there's strangers in town normally they're, at, they're going for the house you know And uh, the the first time we went there actually we stopped I think it's a well it's against that same gas station but uh, we stopped there and there was a girl waited on us and, and basically said oh you guys staying in the house tonight it was like you know how do you know we're staying in the house I guess because we're strangers in town there but uh, but yeah, there's there's no place like the Velocino House. No, for
5: people that haven't been there, this town is small. <laughs> yeah,
7: it's uh, I think the population is like 1,300, and actually it's about the exact same size as it was back when the murders happened. I think the the size of the town then was like 1,300 and something, so it hasn't grown at all over the years. But uh, I I talked to there was a later lady before uh, Johnny Houser was doing the caretaker house. She was like she would like come in and change the bed linens. I mean people don't sleep in beds a lot of times people lay on, but she would come in and change the bed linens. She said she went there one afternoon and uh, she was in the children's bedroom and had made all the beds, basically, and had to go downstairs and pick up another pillowcase. She said, I uh, I took the uh, child's ball that was on the floor and put it in like it was an old milk uh, rack, carton rack, the old plastic style. She said, I put the, the, the ball in the toy rack and she said, went downstairs, got the uh, pillowcase. I came back upstairs. The ball was in the center of the bed. And yeah. She said, that's all I, I needed to see. She said, I'm done cleaning for the day. I'm out of here, so, but she said, yeah, the ball is in That the ball
5: that Actually, I was sitting upstairs in the kids' room, and my friend Matt was up there, and we were videotaping the ball, because you hear stories of it moving, and, sure. and Matt heard footsteps, and he went to see, and there was no one there, but he went downstairs. When we reviewed the tape, as soon as he left the room, it was pitch black, I couldn't see nothing. That ball started rolling around and then stopped, right in front of my feet.
7: Yeah, I mean, you the, you'll be go ahead I'm sorry I was
5: gonna say I you know I didn't touch it the video shows I'm not moving but the darn thing started rolling and then stopped without anyone touching it
7: you know, there's there's definitely something in that house and what's there is not good um, one thing that I thought was kind of cool now I'm not I don't I'm not promoting any shows or not and I'm not a big fan of the ghost adventure show because I think there's a lot of I don't like and, any of those
5: and, shows so. <laughs> yeah
7: well what and, and a lot of times it makes you wonder if their, their the audio that they get is legit well last year uh, actually, it was just the week before we were there. Uh, the Ghost Adventures team had been there, and you know they still had their little black X's that they put on the floor yeah. there. So anyhow, um, you know this was—they finally aired the show several months later. So I decided I'm going to watch the show. I'm watching the show. They played an audio clip of a man's voice that says, um, "What it says? it says? I killed. Uh, it says I killed six children. I still, I'm sorry. It said I killed six kids." I almost fell off my chair because I <clears> recorded the same voice that says, I kill eight. It was the exact same male voice. So um, I knew that was a legitimate cli- a clip that they had there. And, uh, now
5: we got some good EVPs out of there too, things oh, yeah. that would kind of give you chills.
7: I mean, if you're an investigator, I mean, protect yourself when you go there. But if you want to get evidence, that's the place to go. And I think in a way, um, I was talking to Steve Lachance last year uh, at, a, at a fundraiser we had. And, of course, he had an extreme haunting down in Missouri at one point. Uh, but uh, he was, and I was telling him, you know, uh, Steve, I, I keep going back to this place. It's, and he says, he says, okay, Larry, stop. He said, now tell me why you keep going back. And I said, because, you know, I am in this for a reason. I want to find out, you know, what this stuff is, where it comes from. Is it spiritual? Is it ghostly? Is it from, you know, other dimensions that may exist? And he said, well, you get a lot of evidence, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. He says, Larry, have you ever thought that that's a ploy to keep you coming back for more?
5: I was just going to say that they want you coming back. Yeah,
7: absolutely. And you know, that kind of went against what the, the clairvoyant had told me, but I kind of agree with that. It's it's the it's the hook that gets you to come back because I want to give you this much. But, you know, I think it, again, what I saw in the mirror that night, it scared the vejeebers out of me. It scared the daylights out of me.
5: No, that, I mean, that's a horror movie. That that would definitely Absolutely. do it.
7: And, and you start questioning your sanity at that point. And I'm, if, if the lady that, that cuts our hair hadn't said the same thing to my wife, I don't know if I would have said anything to anybody about it. But it gave me that reassurance that what I'm seeing is happening, you know. And, uh, again, it changed the way I do these investigations. It's not fun and games. This, yeah, this well, it's me. a
5: good point, too, people realize that you can bring things home from these places. It's not just all fun and games.
7: Yeah. It can make you sick. It can make you physically sick, and it can also make you mentally sick. Because
5: yeah. people then, see it on TV. They go out and buy themselves a camera and a digital recorder, and you know, lo and behold, they're ghost hunters.
7: <laughs> yeah, and one thing, after I had the the you know the extreme things happen to me in 2008, I sent an email to Darwin Lynn and... Uh, I didn't get a response from him, because I, basically an email I asked him, I said, Darwin, I explained what was happening. I said, do other people report this type of thing happening to him? I didn't hear from him. I started to think that, you know, okay, yeah, it does, and he doesn't really want to respond to this. Right. So, well, about three months later, I got an email from a lady named Carolyn Knight, and Carolyn actually handles the webpage for the Villisba House, or she did at that time. She's since moved away. But she said, I'm sorry that she said I overlooked your email, but uh, she said, I wanted to tell you that, yes, this does happen to many people, and she said, matter of fact, just recently, a guy came and stayed uh, a couple nights, but he was going and staying in a hotel. He would come and investigate, go to the hotel for the next day. She said he was supposed to come back one night, and he didn't come back, and uh, he had paid for the night, uh, so they checked on him at the hotel, and he was there, but he was so sick, he couldn't get off the bed, and he was just did not want to go back to the house. Uh, and Carolyn herself was in there one night uh, and she was staying overnight with a group of Wiccans that were spending the night there. And she said uh, in the middle of the night they saw this black mask started flying around the ceiling of the parlor. And one of the investigators that was there, it was actually, uh, there were three Wiccans and then her, I think it was her brother or brother-in-law, came to investigate too with them. He got extremely sick and had to go outside. So they all decided you know, that they better go outside. But Carolyn said before she went outside, all of a sudden she couldn't hear out of her left ear, I believe it was. Um, and she said she finally, a few days later, went to see like a, a specialist. They couldn't find anything wrong with her ear, but she couldn't hear out of it. And she said, you know, it was a couple weeks, Larry, and then all of a sudden it was just like there was a, a loud pop, and I could hear fine out of my ear again. But she said, I attribute it to something in that house.
5: Yeah, I mean that's a cool house. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. But you got to be per- careful if you go to some place yeah. like that. <laughs> um,
7: we, I, I was I talked again to a spiritualist, and they, they they said you know of course you should always which we do surround yourself with the light of God or a higher being that you live in. Um, but also, cleanse yourself when you leave a place with uh, take sea salt baths and um, use uh, rose water spray that type of thing that that negative things don't like. And I've started doing that, uh, and so far so good. But, uh, but yeah, that's. And I, I'm not sure if I'll go back to the house at least for a while. I'm sure someday I will, but um, I, want, I hope I hope it forgets me. That's what I'm hoping yeah. for. I sometimes. just
5: went there the one time. We spent the night there, and uh, it was I really enjoyed it. But I don't know if I'd want to go back. But, but uh, <laughs> one thing is, it's so darn far away. <laughs>
7: exactly, That's yeah, six miles from me. Also, the one thing that's kind of strange about the house, and some you know people that I talked to, there'll be groups of people that go. And it's like it'll pick out one person in the group, you know, and it it doesn't follow everybody home. It follows one person home. um, But at that same time in 2008, I did make contact with Paul and Sharon to see if anything was happening to them. And actually, um, Paul said that uh, he and his wife were kind of arguing a lot, He said which we normally don't. He said we were kind of at each other's throats, and he said that was unusual, but he hadn't attributed it to the house. So anyhow, I contacted Sharon. And I remember during the investigation, Sharon was talking about, because she had done several of these types of things, not paranormal, but she'd done voiceovers, she said, my husband's a, a big hunter, and he talked about, when he found out I was going to be doing this, he'd like to do a hunting video sometime, and maybe she could do the voiceover. So, they were sound like, everything was going smooth, but when I contacted Sharon, she said, you know, Larry, when I got home, and she didn't attribute it to the Wiska house either, but she said, my husband and I are now separated, yeah. That that happened within days after she got home.
5: You hear stories like that. And yeah, yeah. Quite uh, a few. I've actually experienced one like that, but I don't want to get into it now. But those things sure. do happen. <laughs>
7: Absolutely. It's it's the real deal.
5: Well, what else? <laughs> we got sidetracked in Villisca here. <laughs> what yeah. else you got in your book here, just briefly?
7: Um, briefly, well, there's again, it's uh, nine places and locations that I've been over the last few years. But uh, there's the Morse Mill Hotel out of Morse Mill, Missouri. Um, kind of just a little background on it. You know, people like Jesse James had stayed there, Charles Lindbergh, uh, Charlie Chaplin. Uh, back in the 1930s, the manager of the hotel was a lady named Bertha Gifford. Uh, Bertha Gifford turned out to be the first female serial killer in the United States. Um, what she was doing was, uh, when people would become ill, it was mainly children, a lot of children, but also some relatives, people would become ill, she would go visit, bring her uh, suit, and at the beginning they thought she was like an angel of mercy until people started putting two and two together. and <laughs> They think she uh, she may have killed anywhere from 17 to 23 people with her suit, it was with arsenic. Um, we also did the uh, Cumberland Sugar Creek Cemetery uh, it's in the book, it's near Springfield, Illinois um, I touched on Kemper Military Academy earlier Labina Bistro in Hannibal, uh, Missouri it's a, a, an old restaurant where they've had activity, Rockcliffe Mansion as far as activity it's one of the most active places I've ever been in uh, a, a gentleman by the name of John Crookshank uh, built this mansion back mm-hmm. in 1900 uh, it's like 13,000 square feet and when he built it, it cost about $250,000 back then. But several architects stayed there and went through the building, and they did a study on this house. And they said to build this place today, for this double brick, you know, outside, the finest wood that you could buy in the world at that time. Uh-huh. But anyhow, they said today it would cost upwards of eighty thousand or $80 million to Jeez. build that
1: place.
7: $80 million. But when we were in there that night, we heard uh, what sounded like so little kids upstairs. It were tiny little footsteps you hear, or footsteps, I guess, running around upstairs. Uh, we did get a, an actual shadow going through the house on the video, uh, on the video that night. Yes, yeah,
5: shadows um, and shadow people is quite common in haunted locations.
7: Absolutely, um, and they did. We were doing a documentary, and we did get on film a shadow walking away from a person. Uh, it's not just a shadow; it's just a silhouette of a person. Um, but that's—it's a very cool house. what I was going to say about the Rockwood Mansion is, it's extremely haunted. But you get a good feeling when you go in there. It just feels like the family's still there that lived there, that built the house. You know, you don't get a, a terrifying feeling. Well, yeah,
5: sometimes there's good haunted. I mean, it's almost as if they just continued yeah. doing their daily things, even though they've just, they're have just they deceased now.
7: The strangest place that I've investigated is Williamsburg Hill, which is in south-central Illinois. There's a cemetery at the top of this hill. Uh, Williamsburg Hill is the tallest point in downstate Illinois. It's 810 feet high and you go down like three narrow country roads. Each country road gets narrower until you turn down a lane that the trees are overgrown the top of the lane. So when you go down this lane, it's like you're driving in a cave in the middle of the daytime. It's dark down there. But anyhow, there's they've had all kinds of things down there, and I've experienced some of it, but some of the things that have been seen there, are, uh, anything from UFOs, 1969, they had cattle mutilations out there that they couldn't explain. Um, people have, uh, have seen apparitions. There's the... Uh, lady in black that people have seen out there i interviewed a lady that took her granddaughter out there one time they were just kind of walking through the cemetery and she said you know larry i'd come out here for 30 years i knew all the stories and i'd experienced a few things but she said we come out here one day and my six-year-old granddaughter's with me and she said i'm looking around so i let the granddaughter walk kind of wander off and play and she said a few minutes later she comes running back to me and she says grandma grandma and she's you know and the grandma says you know what's what's wrong what's wrong she says, the lady, she wants me to play with the children. And this grandmother says, what lady? And she says, the lady over there. And she said, her granddaughter pointed but there was nobody there. She said, the lady, she's wearing in the black dress. Don't you see her? And, and the grandmother says, no. And and then the little girl says, but Grandma, when I asked her where the children are, she told me they're under the ground. <laughs> so she said, you know, they went over to find the lady. They couldn't find her. And uh, that place only has one way in and one way out. And it's extremely forested around it. And the uh, terrain around there is just treacherous, so um, this lady couldn't walk through the timber. Um, Ed Osborne, the guy I mentioned earlier, he I told him about uh, investigating the place, but he knew nothing about the lady in black. And he went out there, him and a, and a friend on a Sunday afternoon, and they pulled into the, uh, the parking lot park, walked in. No other cars there. And he said, as soon as you walk in, we see this lady on the far side of the cemetery, and she's dressed all in black. He said it was an elderly lady, and she's kind of knelt down at a gray site. He said, I found it odd that here we are in this rural secluded place, two strange men walking to the cemetery, and she doesn't even acknowledge that they're there. So we said, we were just kind of minded her own business. And I, I looked down, and I looked back up, and she's gone. Sure. And, and he said that nobody came to pick her up. There were no other cars there. And he knew as well as I did you know, that she couldn't walk through the timber to get out of there. Um, there's some fence that surrounds it, but it's just dangerous in there. And she had this. I, I asked him to describe her, and he had described her. And so I called the, the grandmother back to get a better description of the lady. Ed described the lady as having a long black dress on, her hair pulled back in a bun, and the outfit that she had on seemed to be from a different time period, he said. Well, so I called the mother and our grandmother and didn't really explain anything about that. I said, Can you describe what your granddaughter saw? And she said, Yeah. She's basically she said that was the, the lady had a, a long black gown on her dress. Um, she said she had kind of um, snowy kind of white hair. It was pulled back in a bun, and that's all she needed to say. It was basically the same same uh, lady that uh, Ed had seen, you know. So. That's pretty but it's cool. An, it's an unusual place. There's a lot of Native Americans buried out there. Um, they hear phantom voices. Uh, we were out there last summer and kept hearing these voices. It was like the voice of a lady and couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And the next thing you know, there's like two, three, four more voices, and they're all like screaming like bloody murder. And finally we figured out, it wasn't coming from somewhere in the distance it was coming from the ground in the timber we were walking in the timber and you could hear it it was coming from that spot but it was muffled voices huh. and that that same night uh we had heard like somebody walking around in the timber, so, timber rather, so we shined our lights in there and didn't see anything and i picked up a walnut and threw in the uh, timber and just a second or two later the walnut or a walnut comes flying back out and it hit a guy named chris that was with us <laughs> and we shined our lights back, we have like spotlights that we use and there was nothing in there. So you know you can't explain that to
5: yeah, that. Sounds like a Sasquatch playing with you. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: and we had brought the Stanford for a whole time to,
7: to investigate and uh, I'm not sure if it's Stan, but Stan's a well known Bigfoot investigator. He likes to just investigate forested areas and record sounds, you know, see if he can get any wildlife sounds. But anyhow we brought Stan out there and Stan brought his dog uh, with him, uh, Bell. And Bell goes with Stan all over the country on these uh, on Squatch Investigations. Right. And, and Belle is a, uh, I can't remember the type of dog, but it's used to being around wild animals such as bears, big cats. doesn't get spooked. But the whole night that Belle was out there, um, we would move to our left or our right. Belle would stay right on her heels. She'd get right behind us. She wouldn't go out on her own like she normally does. Um, she's taught not to bark or growl. But at one point, she, she did go up to the corner of the edge of the cemetery, and it was like she was on point, was just barking and growling. But Stan said that she was completely out of shelter that night, just wasn't like uh, wasn't like Belle at all. So he, uh, he says, you know, I've been to uh, places in Wyoming, Oregon, and he, he goes out by himself at night. But he said, you know, I wouldn't come to this place by myself, but it's called Winsburg Hill. Uh, there's a lot of legends about the place. And yeah, I know Stan,
5: too. He's actually, I've been with him on one of his little investigations okay. before. Yeah, yeah. And, but, uh, I, there's a spot actually out this way that uh, we believe has got Sasquatch in it. We've been kind of doing some research on it, but trying to keep it quiet.
7: Yeah. Um, Williamsburg Hill, the, the thing about it, uh-huh. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Skinwalker Ranch. They have all kinds of sightings at this place in Utah. Um, but Will Hill is kind of the same way. It's just they see a little bit of everything out there. There has been reports of big cats out there, you know, just uh, well, UFOs, and uh, I talked to a guy out there that said he was out there hunting one time, and uh, four or five red objects went flying over the treetops, and he said about uh, four or five minutes later here come a couple, he, he couldn't quite describe what they were, he said they were like military uh, jets were flying over the treetops like they were they were either chasing or looking for
1: something, you know. Oh,
5: so that's something. interesting.
7: Yeah, it was like confirmation that there was something out there, uh, so uh, it's just it's a unique place, uh, so it's you know, one of the places in the book. Um, but uh, the Legacy Theater, I tested a little bit earlier. Uh, but uh, it's its all places where I've had actual experiences and uh, things that have happened. It's, it it's,
5: sounds like it's actually a good book. its I like the way you do it. It's actually experiences instead of just stories.
7: Right. Um, you know, when you rehash stories, you really don't have that uh, confirmation yourself. At least when I read my own book, I know that everything that's in the book, I know myself, happened. Um, You know, of course, somebody else reads it, then, of course, it's secondhand, but a lot of the people that know me, that have bought the book, um, have heard these stories, you know, for several years, so they they know it's kind of a rehashing for them, but they said, you know, Larry, I know you, so I know that you experienced this stuff, or at least believe you experienced this What's
5: cool about a book like this, too, with your real experiences, is people like myself have been to locations you've been, what you say is stuff I've experienced, which kind of validates things I've heard and seen, too.
7: And that's good when you have parallel investigators that you can talk to, and you kind of can reassure each other that, you know, you're not crazy, and you did, you have experienced things. And but it's that that re- reaffirming that sometimes you need.
1: Well,
5: yeah, because sometimes you get out there after a while, and you're just starting to think you're nuts. <laughs> you, you do, and you
7: know, and eight years ago, um, like I said, when I began this, um, I wouldn't have believed anything that I saw. If somebody came up to me and was telling me this, unless I really, really knew him well, and I, I wouldn't have believed it, but. Uh, there's, there's something out there, whether it's ghostly, um, interdimensional type things. I'm starting to believe more and more that a lot of the audio that we record, is, like some of it just doesn't fit in with the location that you're at.
3: Yeah.
7: It kind of makes you believe that maybe this is coming from some other realm or dimension that bleeds through somehow. I mean,
5: that's a deep subject. I actually agree, Absolutely. too. We'll have to do that another time, too. But, I mean, interdimensional, sure. that's one of my entire theories about ghosts and everything.
7: Absolutely. Well, if you think about it, uh, you know, when you when you die, you do you go just to another dimension? Maybe I mean we call it dimensions. So maybe a heaven is a dimension. Who knows? You know And, and then
5: sometimes, for some reason, the veil or whatever you want to call it is thinner. And our dimensions kind of touch each other.
7: That's the thing about some of these places, too. It just seems like the veil is thinner at these places for some reason. And like a lot of these cemeteries, it's like, they knew to build a cemetery there because it's it's a place where spiritual... spiritual right,
5: spiritual and actually spiritual. the stuff we experience at the cemetery might not have anything to do with the cemetery, but something else.
7: It's Yeah, absolutely. It's just that those locations... Uh,
5: yeah, well, that's like a, uh, religious places, too, throughout history. You'll see religious places are always built on top of other ones throughout history.
7: Absolutely, and they talk to the ley lines how a lot of these locations are... They line up, you know, perfectly line up. And, uh,
5: right. Okay, Larry, we'll, we'll give, the, give the name of your book again here.
7: Uh, uh, Chasing Shadows, and uh, you can get it uh, online right now at uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and Borders. Um, you can order it from me if you like, uh, Urban Paranormal at Yahoo.com, uh, or you can uh, get it from the publisher, which is Black Oak Media.
4: Okay, Michael Clean and Larry Wilson, thank you very much. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio say
5: the month of October and Halloween fast approaching we want you the listener to share your creepy stories with us call us email us text us your personal story your local legends and folklore every week in October we'll read your story on air you can even read it yourself if you're not afraid call or text us at 708-966-9UFO 708-966-9836 or email John directly at ghost1 at bachelor's grove.com. Thank you, and we look forward to your stories.
3: TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info dot com.